Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Ah, technology. Yes, I love technology. <laughs> uh, a little Napoleon Dynamite there. Um, I love technology, and yet it's supposed to, you know, ideally increase some connectivity, right? These phones, all the technology should be helping us get closer with those we love. So in the Coach's Corner today, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about how we can enable technology in our lives without disabling the family. And if the goal is connectivity, connectivity is defined like this. It's the state or quality of being connected, the ability to link and to communicate with others. So it doesn't just mean we get a good Wi-Fi signal. That That's great. That's probably the easy side of connectivity. The hard side is when you want to connect humans and make sure that we understand those around us and make sure that we listen and we pay attention. And so uh, let me give you some tools that might help your family in the age of technology and connectivity to connect a little bit more effectively and how to manage your technology use. One of the first principles and rules is look, look at your technology as a magnifying lens, not the boogeyman, right? Not the evil, dangerous, you know, cancer plague that is destroying our youth. Sure, the, it's impacting our kids a lot. But the, I, when I say it's a magnifying lens, technology really is your friend. It's not your enemy. Many would love to just sit there and blame technology for all of the problems in their lives, for the fact that their children are distant, for the fact that their kids don't get good grades, the fact that they're looking at stuff online that they shouldn't be seeing, for their overeating because they sit in front of TV or their, their obesity because they never exercise. But another way to look at technology is not just to blame it for everything, but maybe look at it as a magnifying lens, meaning what happens with technology is it's going to magnify your natural tendencies anyway. If if you have a tendency to get a little lazy and not exercise, having technology and cable TV and Wi-Fi and Netflix is probably only going to magnify your inherent weakness. It does with me. If I love to just escape in a movie, then the technology is going to, you know, shine a light on that and grow and, and, and grow it and, and embolden it. So it's not necessarily the cause of your problems, but it is magnifying and exposing your biggest weaknesses. If you have a self-esteem weakness and getting online on Facebook Facebook may not just be driving and causing your self-esteem problems as you look at the neighbors who are all doing so much better than you. It's just magnifying the fact that you have kind of a natural inclination to have lower self-esteem. And that's how you use it to magnify the weakness. So make sure you're pointing that out and, and focus as a family on and be real. Like Dr. Karens was saying, really look at yourself and ask, what am I doing with my technology that's that's harming me. And was the, is that not a problem if I didn't have the technology? Would I not naturally just find my way to waste that time anyway? So think of magnifying lens as, as, as a, think of technology as a magnifying lens, not as the boogeyman. Another rule, get better, 
not busy. One of the things that um, we, we spend a lot of time doing with our technology is we try to use it to just get more done. And the sad thing about getting more done is many times we spend all day doing things that we didn't need to do, that weren't even important to do. So instead of just using your your tools and your devices to get a lot more done, let's make sure we're actually improving, right? Let's make sure we're actually getting better. Make sure that you actually are changing and improving, not just being entertained. One of my children um, is on his phone constantly, and we sit there and we have discussions in our house, and out of nowhere, he pulls statistics, he pulls information, he pulls very relevant lessons and, and data that I had never known. And I ask him where he gets it, and he's like, oh, I saw that on YouTube. He actually uses YouTube to go learn. He knows so much, but he's learned it on YouTube. And, uh, you know, it used to be we would learn that in school. He knows so much. Uh, he can. He just sits there, yeah, well, the sun is this far from the, the earth and the earth is this far from. And he's just learned it on YouTube. It's not enough to just use the technology to keep us entertained and busy. Let's and even just chit-chatting and talking or finding the next great video that's moving and motivational. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But there's also a point that you you ought to be able to not have to go to your phone to escape, but instead go now implement what you're learning. Like the question I always ask uh, the people and the couples I work with, what's one thing right now, if you did it right now, would positively impact your life? What's one thing? Can you think of one thing? Let's say you've even, you've even thought about doing it for years. What's, what's that one thing? Well, look, you already know. There's something you can go do right now. Why aren't we doing that? I don't know. I'm busy. Well, you're not busy on Netflix. So what we might want to do is when we have that one thing, if we don't know how to do it, we don't know how to do it effectively, use your technology to go get ideas on how to do the one thing that you know you need to go do. Use your technology to be an alarm to get you up earlier to go do that one thing. Make sense? The goal, getting better, not just staying busy. The goal of technology is to help advance us as humans, make us more human, more humane, not just more busy. Another rule, maximize the micro moments. Research from Dr. Barbara Fredrickson, author of Love uh, 2.0, Creating Happiness and Health in Moments of Connection. She describes what she calls the power of the micro connections or moments of connection that are so important to our communication. Fredrickson's research suggests that love of another is not some constant, all-encompassing emotion we feel throughout the day, but instead love is a small micro-moment where we share a caring feeling or emotion. So when you think you love your family, loving of a family is not, that's, that's, that concept is not a constant concept because you're not constantly thinking about loving your family. That that love would be made up of micro moments throughout the day where in a loving way for a short period of time, you are connecting in and serving and taking care of your family. She argues it's the micro moments really that are the major drivers of health and can dramatically improve your use of technology 
So why not use our technology to create more micro moments? Text your son, hey, do you want to go on a walk today? My son's on campus here at BYU. I'm asking him, do you want to go on a walk today? Micro moment. Hey, how how did that test go? Micro moment. What did your friends say about whatever? Micro moment. So think of your life not just as big events. Well, we took our kids to Disneyland. That's so great. It might be better to have days full of micro moments, just little moments here and there where you express your love, you show your love, you care. And last but not least, we need to power up our will, our willpower, right? So the final area we need to improve if we want to make our technology our servant, not our master, is we're going to have to start to to have some more willpower. And the fastest way I've ever found to grow willpower is to have some rules, some won't power, some things we just won't do. So if you want your kids to have more and more willpower with their phones, they need more rules. It sounds horrible, but the rules allow them to exercise their will and turn off the phone or put the phones away, right? Turn off the TV. And the more they have to exercise turning off the TV when they don't want to, the willpower will grow. It's, you know... It's the ability to do something you don't want to do, but you do it because you have a higher need, a higher purpose. And willpower, it's not just something we just talk about. It's something we can actually do. You could take a, have a regular technology fast where you could say every Sunday from morning till 5 o'clock at night, no technology. You can have a phone time when all the phones are turned off and turned in. In our house, we don't want the phones up in our kids' rooms. You might have a book time when only books can be uh, in the house. We're only reading books. We're not on our phones. You could have exercise times where maybe once in a while you go exercise as a family. You go play tennis as a family. You go do an activity as a family, and we put the phones away. Spend some time writing letters, visiting people, goal-setting. But the simple rule is let's spend more time exercising will. And when you do that, they'll learn to power up. So the four rules, very basically, to help us connect better without destroying the family. Think magnifying lens, not boogeyman. Get better, not busy. Maximize the micro moments and power up your will. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, interesting topic today because it, you know, it's not quite fair, is it? That if we go shopping for shampoo, should a should a pink, frilly, flowery bottle of shampoo cost more than just the non-frilly basic shampoo bottle? Same size, same amount. Well, there is a crazy inconsistency that goes on in the world of marketing, and that inconsistency is costing females about $1,500 a year, more. They call it the pink tax, and it's costing your wives, your mothers, your sisters, your friends more 
Is it fair? Is it just sexist? What's going on? And so we're going to be talking about that today. Now, as a kid that grew up with four women in the house, I realized everything was different anyway in my life. So youngest child, only boy in the house, only uh, my parents divorced. And so it was just me and my three sisters and my mom. Okay. Four women in the house. And we'd go clothes shopping and we could go in and get my tough skin jeans with my extra durable knees for sliding. And then we would go to the women's department and spend hours trying on clothes. But what I never realized about the whole thing is that all of these feminine products in my house, all of these pink things, their robes that were pink and frilly and their pink slipper, I didn't realize all of that was costing so much more than what I would be uh, than what I would be paying as an adult. So whether it's from razors that are almost identical to children's scooters, only differing in color to adult diapers and various other products, there's an inconsistency, okay? It's called the pink tax. Products marketed for women or girls are priced higher than virtually identical products for men. And according to one study by a New York uh, Department of Consumer Affairs, personal care products marketed to women cost an average of 13% more than the equivalent men's product, okay? So 8% on adult clothing, 4% on children's clothing, 7% on toys and accessories, 8% higher on home health care products and products for seniors. So one study estimated that these hidden costs will eventually cost a woman at least or nearly $1,400 a year. So we want to know why. What's going on there? Dr. Christine Whelan uh, is a clinical professor in the Department of Consumer Science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's here today to, to on the phone, actually, to talk to us about what's going on here. Is this just marketing? Is it... Uh, is it sexism? What is going on? Dr. Whelan, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Good morning. Happy to be on. Great to have you. What do you think of this? Teach us. I mean, is this just is this just economics? <laughs> you know what? At its core, it, it somewhat is. So I think it's a little bit, to answer your question, it's a little bit of both. It's okay. a little bit of marketing. It's a little bit of sexism. There are, um, think, of, think about it from a company's perspective first. Yeah. If you know that if you make the identical product a different color, pink as opposed to blue, that someone is going to pay more for it, what are you going to do? Yeah. You're going to charge more for it. All day long. Right? You're going to charge what you can charge, right? The market exactly. sets the price. It is, it is straight supply and demand. Yeah. So, um, so really my role is to help educate consumers to make the best decision about how to spend their money in keeping with their values. Mm. That's, so, that's it, because huh? it, it's, it's about information. Just be aware of it. It is. If you're aware of it, it just changes everything. Mm-hmm. So think about it. If, if you say, gosh, that pink razor is actually going to give me joy in the morning. When I get in the shower, I want to look at a pink razor <laughs> because that's going to give me joy. Yeah. Well, you know what? Then it actually may be worth spending an extra 30 cents or 50 cents on the pink razor right. rather than the blue. If you say, you know what? It doesn't matter to me one bit. Then get the, get the less expensive product. It's also a matter of how we teach our children to, uh, to spend in keeping with their values. When I take my kids to buy a bicycle helmet, for example, if the pink one is significantly more expensive than the blue one or the red one, mm-hmm. I might turn to my daughter and say, hey, guess what? In our family, 
it, we, we choose to spend our money on the, on the less expensive identical product, and then we'll go home and we'll decorate it. We'll there put you go. stickers on it. Yeah. We'll customize it so it's just perfect for you. That's see, that's how we did it. We are we had a daughter first, and then five boys. So we always knew that every hand me down would be to a boy, and we just kind of bought neutral stuff, reds, Absolutely. gender neutral. And but it's funny because then some people will go, maybe a grandparent is buying their grandchild a scooter or something, and they have to have the pink one because she's a girl. And, and you know, let's get that, it, okay. and that makes sense, right? That's the value. That that is that is the value that the person making the purchase is placing right. on on the color, and that's fine. It's also fine in that case for the the, uh, the manufacturer to, uh, to to charge a little more. I think. Yeah. Um, now now the uh, where it gets tricky is when they are charging more for um, identical products where you actually think that you do need to buy the, the women's versus the men's. Mm. So, for example, a laxative or um, any medicine uh, that is uh, geared toward both women and men. Sure. I might, as a consumer, say, gosh, I need to buy the, the women's product because I worry that the men's product may be stronger or not um, equipped for my body. It's not formulated for men. Right, <laughs> and so now they have they to are, formulate. Um, it. If they're t- kind of telling a little fib there, yeah, and they're they're uh, they're sort of using a marketing ploy, and then they're charging more. That's a problem. Mm. That is uh, that is not okay. Well, see, and what they would say though, isn't it, Christine? That the company would say, "But hold on, our research to create the formulation and the formula for the female." version cost more money to formulate it cost more research to do it and more marketing to directly target the female thus we charge more well yes but since when did the male become the standard of um, exactly of exactly <laughs> right right i mean you know women are 50 percent of the population well, right. we need to come up with a product that works for the population exactly large. well see and that's why you could maybe there's so there's vitamins for senior women and senior men but there's also just vitamins for seniors and well, you, exactly. you just you can just pick the gender neutral one right and most of the time you'll probably get what you need unless of course there is a real need to, to differentiate Right. So for me, it's really about education first and foremost, and yeah. it's about having the consumer know to look um, and, uh, and, and to, uh, to comparison shop. Because once we do that, then if people stop buying pink razors, you know what? Companies are going to stop making more That's expensive right. pink razors, or they will reduce the price of the pink razors. Right. And why can't, you know, like my wife, a lot of times, it, she'll just use my razor. Well, your razors, are, and this is, the, this, is, this is the even more This is the secret. Thing. Don't tell anyone. I'm going to tell people, <laughs> men's razors are better to begin They're with. They're way better. Yeah, I've tried to shave with my wife's, and it just cuts my legs right up. Um, is, it, is it, here's, I guess, the deal, though. If they are also, I mean, I have a feeling that, um, like, women's clothing is more money, but then they're saying it's more money just because of the cut and the design, but they're still mass-producing it, and it's not like they're, I don't know, it's... It, it really, in many cases, can't be that much more money. And in fact, well, it's actually less material generally. Usually. So right, why are we not? Right. So why are we not cutting a break? It's, is it just not simply that women will pay for it? Women will pay for it, but now, but now we get into the the double standard about whose appearance um, we there we go 
put more focus on. Yeah. And so this is, a, this is a problem. So yes, women will pay for it, but are they paying for it because they, they truly want to and it's in keeping with their values, or are they paying for it because they feel like they have to look a certain way mm-hmm. to present themselves at work in a way that um, you know, is appropriate for the, or or that um, that uh, not, that a man will find attractive, or all of the or that you know society thinks is is au courant and feminine. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of pressures are not ones that are, women are really choosing necessarily in keeping with their values, but they're paying for. And so uh, that's where it gets that's where it gets really tricky. Now I'm not sure I blame the marketers for right. the clothing for right. that. That's our larger society. Um, you know, that's that's our larger society. Well, and women so, that that means they have to buy more expensive clothes, but they have to buy. They're buying makeup. They're oh, buying sure. and the makeup itself. I use makeup just on weekends. No, I use makeup on TV all the time. And mm-hmm. when I go in to buy some makeup, it is it's an incredible sales job. And I'm like, I just need this one thing, just this one thing. Here's the number. Just go grab it. Let me get out of here. But it's fifty bucks. Oh, it's fifty bucks for this one powder, so I don't shine. And think about if you had to do that every day. Yeah, I mean, All day. hair, nails, and I mean, well, you don't have to have this stuff. True, it's totally true, but people do, and women feel like they do, and a lot of that is just gen- it's how how we look at each other. It's how we, you know, put women on display. It's how we market. So it's how we airbrush. That we talk about in uh, the Money Relationship and Equality Initiative that I direct at the University of Wisconsin at Madison is about how couples can talk about this in relationships. Mm. Because uh, you can imagine a man saying to a woman, well, why is it you spend so much money, uh, so much more money than I do on stuff? Right. You spend all this money on makeup and hair and clothes and, you know, complaining about that. Well, that leads to a larger discussion about presentation of self and values and, um, and, and what it actually means to have equality, financial equality, mm-hmm. which does not necessarily mean the same thing as spending the exact same amount. Right, right, right. And, it's, and there's this weird uh, concept I hear about high-maintenance spouses. <laughs> and I think, well, mm-hmm. high-maintenance may simply be because her haircut costs five times more than yours. Or um, because she has need of feminine products monthly. I mean, these costs aren't – it's not equal. It's not fair. Uh, men don't have to have hygiene products every month like women do. And so it's it, – the disparity, I guess, doesn't go away. And I guess part of your goal at more Money, Relationships, and Equality, um, is to educate but also, I guess, to, to help us con- have better conversations, Right. Absolutely. So what we do is um, on the on our, our website, which is more.sohi.wisc.edu, um, and maybe you can put that up on your site yeah, for we your will. listeners, because we have free workbooks. This is the wonderful part about having this be an academic initiative. It is totally a free thing. Cool. So we, yeah. We offer all of these free workbooks for couples to have conversations about money, mm. to have conversations about equality within their relationship. And, by the way, also to have conversations about valuing unpaid labor that is done within the home. Oh, I love it. As equal to paid labor that's done outside the home. Yeah. Because <laughs> exactly. how we value, like my wife stay, is a stay-at-home mom and works harder than anyone on earth, makes more money, saves more money for us. But how do we value that and and change the discussion in the world? Mm-hmm. Because 
they're so undervalued and even in their own identity, they might even not always value it to the degree that we as society probably need to value it. So the website uh, for your information is if you go, if you type in more.sohe, S-O-H-E dot whisk dot E-D-U, you can get to her website. Uh, it's at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a f- wonderful resource there. Uh, they have free workbooks, checklists, tools, everything you need to know um, about money, relationships, and equality. Talk to us, Dr. Whelan. We were talking about this uh, pink tax with women. Um, it's not – I mean, marketing-wise, it seems, I guess, they'll justify it through the business market model. Um, in the end, though, is it is it something that women should – and men, I guess, too, should fight against? Do we fight it out? Do we – and how do we push back on companies that are charging women more for basically the exact same items? I think we, we certainly can fight, and the most important and effective way we can fight is with our dollars. Mm. So this is not about regulation. This is simply about choosing to spend your money differently if you feel that the, the, the pink tax is something that is not in keeping with your values. Just so, don't spend the money. Don't buy the pink. Don't buy the pink. Buy the blue. Buy the green. Buy the red. And then make a complaint. You can make it just so they know, right? Otherwise, they'll just think men are buying more. But what's really going to uh, what's really going to move the dial is just is just spending differently. And and to understand, I think we we often sort of start at the idea of of spent. We should just spend our money differently. But we need to take a couple steps back. And um, when we talk about relationships, there's this wonderful line: before you can say "I love you," you must first know how to say the "I." That's Mm. the only way you can wish to be loved. And what that basically means is you have to understand who you are, what your values are, and your sense of self-worth before that you can get in relationship with other people. Hmm. And at, at part of the Money Relationship and Equality Initiative is asking those big questions about values and self-worth. Um, I have a, um, a book that's coming out called The Big Picture, and it is a guide for young adults on how to identify and live a purposeful, meaningful life. And you would think that has nothing to do with money, but it really does. Totally. Because when, you, because when you think about what matters to you and you are living and working toward a larger purpose, then it makes it much more clear about whether you uh, pay extra for something that is a different color or not. Right. Right. And, and eventually you're going to have to work together on these resources. So having these conversations, that will help too, right? I mean, this is going to help us get on the same page. It is. And, you know, couples are always going to fight uh, about money because what we're fighting about is a a difference in resource allocation and, again, values. So fights about money are are the worst and longest fights that people have within relationships. Uh, But that's a little bit of a a sort of misnomer because, again, it's, it's not really about the dollars and cents. It's about what, what priorities you have. Mm-hmm. And, and so the more you can talk about those issues and not focus on, you know, I can't believe you spent $23 on that. <laughs> right. right. No, but I had a coupon. We didn't need it in the first place. Right. <laughs> it's so true, which is, I think, why this initiative that you're doing is so powerful. Um, because you, you, so you've been funded. You have, I guess, some grant money and you're building this. This is a brilliant kind of approach to relationships by targeting one of the bigger issues, money, and the kind of the power inequality that goes on in relationships. Exactly. And really, it's giving 
giving voice to these issues. And because we are through a university and because we're funded with grant money yeah. and, um, and, uh, and private donations, which has been really wonderful, we are able to engage in, in teaching and outreach so that we are giving away all this, uh, all this, this knowledge and workbooks. And so I've written many workbooks um, and published many books that, uh, that I'm trying to sell. And it's actually really quite fun to not have to sell anything but to say, we have this material, it's out there, yeah. and, uh, and please feel free to use it. It's research-based and, um, and ready for people. And what could we do, just as we kind of are winding this down, what, what are some conversations we should be having in our own marriages, with our children, in our homes, about, um, like you were saying, about just the value of uh, what we do in the home, the value of women, and the value of men? So this comes back to sort of what do we, what do we care about? So if you ask, you know, even at the family dinner table, uh, one of the questions we ask every day is, is what was the best thing that happened to you today? And when you do that, you can also acknowledge the people who helped make that great thing happen. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes it is the unpaid labor that is done in the home that, oh, say, allows the food to be put on the dinner table, the dinner table to be set, the house to be a warm and welcoming place for the family. And to begin to acknowledge that as a family is a great way to acknowledge the importance of care work um, and also to raise the next generation to value it equally to, uh, to paid labor done outside the home. Mm. Because you can't, you, I mean, you could even bring people in to do the cleaning and the food and everything, but there's something so priceless about the creation of the feeling of home. Yes, and somebody also has to manage and organize all of that. Exactly. My used to call it invisible work. Right. And it, until I engaged in all this invisible work, I didn't understand what she was talking yeah, about. You, but now as a mother of lots of young kids myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it really is. And then, and then I guess then have these other discussions. Like talk to your kids about the fact that, look, mom's shampoo costs $2 more than dad's shampoo. And it's from the same company. And then should mom be using dad's shampoo? Mm-hmm. And what happens if mom uses, but she'll smell like a man and talk well, about really, colors, really? right? Are, is pink a color for a girl only is, yeah. Can, can girls wear red instead of pink, a ride a red bike instead of pink? Absolutely. I mean, you know, so I have, um, I have a, a four-year-old and a two-year-old little girl and a six-month-old boy. And we are, um, as somebody who's taught sociology of gender for many years, we are really raising them all in a fairly gender-neutral way, yeah. which means that, um, you know, that, that my little girls are uh, running around with, um, with Star Wars stuff these days, which <laughs> yeah. most little two- and four-year-olds are not, but yeah. their, their guy friends are, so they are too. <laughs> That's great. No, really. I mean, and it's a it's a different day. It's a different age, and still, too, to be able to also say this is what makes women special. This is what makes men special in their unique ways, and honor that as well. That's right, because equality does not mean that everyone is always the identical. Oh, and thank heavens, huh? What if I had to have? What if I had to be married to someone like me? Yuck. <laughs> That's disgusting. Well, that's that's actually a topic for another day, because for the most part, people do engage in what we call assortative mating. 
that you do actually choose pick, somebody. Pick them like you. Exactly. You. Exactly. It's true, though, huh? And, yeah, values-based. Exactly. Your way. Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff, Christine. We are for sure going to have you back because you've got so many other topics we'd love to, to talk about. Um, so thank you so much. Again, Dr. Christine Whalen uh, is joining us again from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And, uh, again, go to her website. Wonderful resources there. Um, just simply... Go to more.sohi.wisc.edu and check out their workbooks. I just downloaded one of them, um, and it's uh, it's already it's already uh, downloaded. I can see it. I can read it. Ah, good stuff, folks. The resources are free. They're the, you're, they're at your fingertips. Go use them. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, great, great topic, important to all of us. Um, it's it's not just about gender equality. It's about our communications, our relationships. It's about our money. And today we are speaking uh, with Dr. Christine Whelan, who is the, um, the director. She's a professor of consumer science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the director of the university's Moore program. More stands for money, relationships, and equality. And a wonderful resource to help our discussions, our relationships about what is what is really, I guess, uh, equality, but also maybe more importantly, just start the dialogue in our marriages, in our families um, about about our roles, our, our value, and, um, and maybe just educate us a little bit more about, about what inequality sometimes looks like. Dr. Christine Whelan, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much. The website uh, for your information is if you go, if you type in more.sohe, S-O-H-E, dot whisk, dot E-D-U, you can get to her website. Uh, it's at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a f- wonderful resource there. Uh, they have free workbooks, checklists, tools, everything you need to know um, about money, relationships, and equality. Talk to us, Dr. Whelan. We were talking about this uh, pink tax with women. Um, it's not, I mean, marketing-wise, it seems, I guess, they'll justify it through the business market model. Um, in the end, though, is it is it something that women should, and men, I guess, too, should fight against? Do we fight it out? Do we? And how do we push back on companies that are charging women more for basically the exact same items? I think we, we certainly can fight, and the most important and effective way we can fight is with our dollars. Mm. So this is not about regulation. This is simply about choosing to spend your money differently if you feel that the, the, the pink tax is something that is not in keeping with your values. Just so, don't spend the money. Don't buy the pink. Don't buy the pink. Buy the blue. Buy the green. Buy the red. And then make a complaint. You can make it just so they know, right? Otherwise, they'll just think men are buying more. But what's really going to uh, what's really going to move the dial is just is just spending differently. And and to understand, I think we we often sort of start at the idea of of spent. We should just spend our money differently. But we need to take a couple steps back 
And um, when we talk about relationships, there's this wonderful line, before you can say, I love you, you must first know how to say the I. Mm. That's the only way you can wish to be loved. And what that basically means is you have to understand who you are, what your values are, and your sense of self-worth before that you can get in relationship with other people. Hmm. And at, at part of the Money Relationship and Equality Initiative is asking those big questions about values and self-worth. Um, I have a, um, a book that's coming out next month, actually, called The Big Picture. And it is a guide for young adults on how to identify and live a purposeful, meaningful life. And you would think that has nothing to do with money, but it really does. Totally. Because when you, because when you think about what matters to you and you are living and working toward a larger purpose, then it makes it much more clear about whether you uh, pay extra for something that is a different color or not. Right, right. And and eventually you're going to have to work together on these resources. So having these conversations, that will help too, right? I mean, this is going to help us get on the same page. It is. And, you know, we're, we're, couples are always going to fight uh, about money because what we're fighting about is a, a difference in resource allocation and, again, values. So fights about money are, are the worst and longest fights that people have within relationships. Uh, but that's a little bit of a, a sort of misnomer because, again, it's, it's not really about the dollars and cents. It's about what, what priorities you have. Mm-hmm. And, and so the more you can talk about those issues – and not focus on, you know, I can't believe you spent $23 on that. <laughs> right. right. No, but I had a coupon. We didn't uh, need it in the first place. Free. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true, which is, I think, why this initiative that you're doing is so powerful. Um, because you, you, So you've been funded. You have, I guess, some grant money. And you're building this. This is a brilliant kind of approach to relationships by targeting one of the bigger issues, money and the kind of the power inequality that goes on in relationships. Exactly. And really, it's giving, giving voice to these issues. And because we are through a university and because we're funded with grant money yeah. and, um, and, uh, and private donations, which has been really wonderful, we are able to engage in, in teaching and outreach so that we are giving away all this, uh, all this, this knowledge and workbooks. And so I've written many workbooks um, and published many books that, uh, that I'm trying to sell. And it's actually really quite fun to not have to sell anything but to say, we have this material, it's out there, yeah. and uh, please feel free to use it. It's research-based and, um, and ready for people. And what could we do, just as we kind of are winding this down, what, what are some conversations we should be having in our own marriages, with our children, in our homes, about, um, like you were saying, about just the value of uh, what we do in the home, the value of women, and the value of men? So this comes back to sort of what do we, what do we care about? So if you ask, you know, even at the family dinner table, uh, one of the questions we ask every day is, is what was the best thing that happened to you today? And when you do that, you can also acknowledge the people who helped make that great thing happen. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes it is the unpaid labor that is done in the home that, oh, say, allows the food to be put on the dinner table the dinner table to be set, the house to be a warm and welcoming place for the family. And to begin to acknowledge that as a family is a great way to acknowledge the importance of care work um, and also to raise the next generation to value it equally to, uh, to paid labor done outside the home. Mm. Because you can't – I mean, you could even bring people in to do the cleaning and the food and everything, but 
there's something so priceless about the creation of the feeling of home. Yes, and somebody also has to manage and organize all of that. Exactly. My used to call it invisible work. Right. And it, until I engaged in all this invisible work, I didn't understand what she was talking yeah, about. You, but now as a mother of lots of young kids myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it really is. And then, and then I guess then have these other discussions. Like talk to your kids about the fact that, look, mom's shampoo costs $2 more than dad's shampoo. And it's from the same company. And then should mom be using dad's shampoo? Mm-hmm. And what happens if mom uses, but she'll smell like a man and talk well, about colors, really? right? Are, is pink a color for a girl only is, yeah. Can, can girls wear red instead of pink, a ride a red bike instead of pink? Absolutely. I mean, you know, so I have um, I have a, a four-year-old and a two-year-old little girl and a six-month-old boy, and we are, um, as somebody who's taught sociology of gender for many years, we are really raising them all in a fairly gender-neutral way, yeah. which means that, um, you know, that, that my little girls are uh, running around with, um, with Star Wars stuff these days, which <laughs> yeah. most little two- and four-year-olds are not, but yeah. their, their guy friends are, so they are too. <laughs> That's great. No, really. I mean, and it's a it's a different day. It's a different age. And still, too, to be able to also say this is what makes women special. This is what makes men special in their unique ways and honor that as well. That's right, because equality does not mean that everyone is always the identical. Oh, and thank heavens, huh? What if I had to have what if I had to be married to someone like me? Yuck. <laughs> That's disgusting. Well, that's well, a story. That's actually a topic for another day because, for the most part, people do engage in what we call assortative mating. That you do actually choose pick, somebody. Pick who them is like very you. Exactly. To you. Exactly. It's true, though, huh? And yeah, values based. Exactly. Your way. Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff, Christine. We are for sure going to have you back because you've got so many other topics we'd love to to talk about. Um, so thank you so much again, Dr. Christine Whalen uh, is joining us again from the University of Wisconsin Madison. And uh, again, go to her website, wonderful resources there. Um, just simply go to more.sohi.wisc.edu and check out their workbooks. I just downloaded one of them. Great resources for all of us. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Happy April Fool's Day as well. Uh, And International Tuba Day. International Tuba Day, the day that we celebrate (laughs) the the large, odd instrument in the marching band. This is a uh, little bit of a serenade. This is what Ben plays when he... I brought my tuba to work today. Brings his dates over. What is this called, Ben? Xardis. Say it again. Xardis. Don't understand it. This is quite a tuba. International Tuba Day. It's the day, uh, you know, tuba players gather to celebrate and, you know... Purse their lips, is that what it's called? Mm. It's an important member of the brass section of the band, folks. It's the one that the Stanford football player crushed. 
That was the day that we'll live in tuba infamy. We lost a tuba player. Uh, anyway, it's also, by the way, one cent day. The one cent coin has been in circulation in the United States since 1793, but the modern image of the coin bearing the face of American President Abraham Lincoln didn't come into circulation until 1909. Previously to this date, the coins bore the mark of the Native American in traditional headdress. The name Penny, hey, Penny for your thought, is a colloquialism derived from the English penny, though it is pluralized to pennies in the United States rather than the British pence. Hmm. The image of Lincoln on the coins came to pass as part of the decision made by President Roosevelt to increase the artistic merit of the American currency system. Powerful. Pennies. Do you even use them anymore? If you found a penny on the ground, would you just – would you pick it up? Yeah. Would you? Mm-hmm. For good luck? See, that's, yeah. that's the difference. See, at my age, it becomes a kind of a risk management issue. Is it worth the risk to blow out the hip, to lose your equilibrium, to go down and get the penny? Not me, man. I'm a dime man myself. I'll only go down to get the dime. I am the healthiest human ever known to man. Thank you. Speaking of money, sad, sad day for a French woman who thought she won the lottery uh, jackpot. She racked up thousands of dollars in bills when she went on a shopping spree to celebrate, only to learn her ticket was off by a digit. Uh, You missed it by just a digit. 46-year-old mom. (laughs) then had to sheepishly explain her spendthrift ways to the court after cops arrested her for fraud, having bounced checks all over the city. According to newspaper accounts, nobody wants, she didn't name, they didn't name the woman. Her husband was worried that the lottery company was slow in sending his wife the winnings, so he rechecked her ticket. Then he realized that her spending celebrations were a tad premature. Isn't that sad? She was given a suspended sentence and some time to pay off her $5,800 in bad checks. What's the moral of the story, Ben? What do we learn from this? Ditch the country before your your checks bounce. No, Benjamin. No. We always, always use a credit card. (laughs) Duh. (laughs) That's just one bill you can dodge for years. That's what my collections agent said. But sooner or later, you're going to have to pay it off. Yeah, the better deal would probably be don't spend your money till the eggs have hatched. Put that on a meme. I just made that up. Good job. Basically, make sure you check the numbers, folks. I know you're all excited, but if you're going to win the lotto, check the numbers 10 times before you write a check. Duh. Seems like a no-brainer. I think that's great analysis. Thank you. Thank you. Again, this is information you don't get everywhere. You don't get this everywhere. In fact, many people would say this is information you shouldn't even be getting. That's how good this is. We're going to take a break, folks. That's hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show. You've learned a lot. The pink tax. Women, quit buying the pink stuff. It's costing you a fortune. And check the lotto numbers before you go on a spending spree. Information, helping you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier, happier life. Stick with us. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, to, in a little coach's corner for you here today, uh, as we were just talking with Dr. Rodney Stark about, you know, myth of religion being in decline. Not, it's a myth, folks. Uh, religion's holding steady across the globe. And um, so I thought, hey, let's give you some ideas of why uh, the benefits or real impact that religion has in your life. Okay, try to give you eight different ideas here. By the way, this all comes from LiveScience.com. LiveScience.com, the name of the article is Eight Ways Religion Impacts Your Life by Stephanie Pappas. Number one, religion helps you resist junk food. Does it? Because I am religious and I eat tons of junk food. But uh, in a study published in January of 2012 in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, researchers exposed students to references of God in tests and games— and compared the students who saw references of pleasant but non-religious objects, and they found out that those that were religiously cued felt that they had uh, more control over their their eating habits, whether they'd eat treats or not. Those that actually saw religious cues were less inclined to go eat the junk food. Hmm, interesting, huh? Uh, religion, interestingly, it, it influences your life by maybe possibly uh, – maybe even helping you lose weight. According to a study presented at an American Heart Association meeting in March of 2011, young adults who frequently attended religious activities um, are 50% more likely to uh, not to, to 50% less likely to be obese by middle age. So it's, you know, if you're not eating junk food, this religion thing could be actually helping you lose some weight. It also puts a smile on your face. Uh, people uh, that are attending you know, their churches regularly, according to a published study in the Journal of American Sociolo- Sociological Review, said that they're more happy, and not because of necessarily the n- denomination or the belief, but from the joys of being social of being, uh, and joining together with your fellowship of other people on a regular basis. So, you know, the ability to go to church and hang out with some of your friends and people that you are in your network at your church actually puts a smile on your face. They also found another benefit or impact of religion is it actually raises your self-esteem, you know, if, by the way, you live in the right place. Uh, Depending on where you live, religion may also make you feel better about yourself or by making you a part of a larger culture. Um, people who are religious have higher self-esteem and better psychological adjustment than people who aren't. Now, that shouldn't make you mad. Oh, I see. That's why I hate religion. But I, they're probably talking about places where there's a higher concentration of your, you know, religious belief. Maybe the Bible Belt, maybe kind of Intermountain area in the United States. If, as uh, Doctor Stark was talking about, uh, Central and South America, where many, many, many people are attending church. Every single week, up to 60 to 70 percent of people in South America are attending mass. Are you kidding me? That's amazing. Uh, Interesting thing about religion is it soothes anxiety. Uh, If you're religious, thinking about God can help soothe the anxiety associated with making mistakes. In other words, believers can fall back on their faith to deal with setbacks gracefully, according to a 2010 study. Um, Interesting in the study, I guess they also studied atheists. Apparently the trick doesn't work for them. Um, sad. Uh, another uh, impact of religion, it protects against depressive syst- symptoms. Depression recovery proceeds better against a backdrop of religion, according to one 1998 study 
published in the American Journal of Psychiatry, older patients who were hospitalized for physical problems but also suffered from depression recovered better from their mental struggles if religion was an intrinsic part of their lives. That's according to the Journal of Clinical Psychology in 2010. A belief in a caring God improves the response to psychiatric treatment in depressed patients. Wow. That's powerful. In fact, it's directly tied to a specific belief that a supreme being, a supreme being cared for them. So the belief, you know, this isn't just a bunch of gobbledygook. It feels good to know that you have a supreme being, a heavenly father or, a, you know, a God that's watching over you. Another impact religion has, according to the LiveScience.com report, Eight Ways Religion Impacts Your Life, is that it motivates doctor visits. You're more likely to go to the doctor if you, uh, in fact, are attending a religion. Religion is linked to health in general, possibly because religious people have more social support, better coping skills, and a more positive self-image than those people who don't join faith-based communities. In a a 1998 study published in the Journal of Health, Education, and Behavior, um, regular churchgoers are more likely to get preventative care in the case of mammograms. About 75% of the 1,500 church members in the study got regular mammograms, compared with 60% of a sample of 510 women who were not church members. Anyway, interesting. Last but not least, it lowers your blood pressure. People who attend church often have lower blood pressure than those who don't go at all. That's weird because for me, it actually raises my blood pressure sometimes. Like when you got to teach or you got to speak or you've got to do something. According to a study out of Norway in 2011, those results um, were impressive given the fact that church going is relatively rare in Norway. But what they found is participants who went to church at least three times a month had blood pressures one to two points lower than non-attendees. Powerful. So it helps. It's helpful. And again, you don't have to be all up in everyone's face about your religion. But a couple of things we've learned from Dr. Rodney Stark, it's it's not declining. Religious attendance is holding pretty steady. Some, the younger generations, may not be attending as much, but it doesn't mean they're not believing. It just might mean they're sleeping in, which I'm going to bet in the 70s was pretty common. I'm going to bet the 18 to 30-year-olds in the 70s and the 60s, even the 80s, were probably sleeping in as well. And overall, uh, many things it does do for us. If anything, man, what if it could just elevate our conversation, elevate our, you know, our acceptance of one another, our tolerance, our appreciation of fellow human beings? Huge, powerful. That's it. That's the first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Again, we can't do it without you, so go, go look up our app, uh, the BYU Radio app. And uh, you can download all of our podcasts, share them with the people you love, you care about. We're helping you try to see the good in the world. We'll take a break. We'll come back next hour. More ideas to help you uh, live healthier and happier right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. A little uh, of the fray for you right there. Trust Me is the name of that song. 
And who better to teach us this than the guy that wrote the book, The Speed of Trust, uh, Stephen M. R. Covey is joining us. Honored to have him. He is a friend. He was my CEO of my of a company, Covey Leadership Center, when I used to work for him. He's just the coolest guy in the world. He wrote the book, The Speed of Trust. His dad you may have heard of. He was a kind of a well-known guy and one of the best thought leaders, I think, ever. Um, he, uh, his dad was Stephen R. Covey, who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. But uh, Stephen then kind of glommed on to, I don't know if that's a good enough word, but he jumped onto this idea of trust as kind of the ultimate. It seems like, um, first of all, Stephen, welcome. Hey, thanks. So nice to be with you, Matt. It's so good, good to, see, to you. see you again. And we were talking about your son, Britton, by the way, who's killing it at the University of Utah. You know, he's a, um, he came in as a true freshman football player. Yeah. Fi- Five eight, five eight, times speedy, <laughs> but like three times state champ or whatever. Uh-huh. Incredible quarterback, and they put him at like a slot back or what do they call slot it? Slot receiver yeah. and, and a punt returner, kick uh-huh. returner, and um, killed it. The yeah. first game, even. Yeah, just it was so exciting to watch, and I think he became kind of a fan favorite because yeah. he's this little guy. He's a tiny guy with and a huge heart, huge heart, a lot of courage, yeah. fearless, yeah. And uh, takes punts when he shouldn't be taking them. I know, them. no, exactly. And you're like, no, 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 no. And I mean, it, sometimes it doesn't go right, but it, but what's cool is he'll do it as a yeah. freshman. Yeah, yeah. And and, and awesome. uh, so he stepped into a you know exciting environment and and uh, and he know. left for an LDS mission for two years to Chile. Gave up this incredible career at football right there. Goes for two years. He'll come back. Be back on the team. But you got to be so proud. Yeah, really proud as a parent. It's, it's pretty exciting to watch. That's in fact, uh, the proud dad moment is that uh, he ended up uh, making a couple of uh, fresh first team freshman, freshman all American all American yeah, teams. Oh my heavens! So pretty exciting. There's something about the Coveys, and uh, you you get it. I think at a, you're just a special family. And John, I know John really, really, yeah. really well. We worked a lot. His uh, John is your uncle. Yes. Um, but tell me about Speed of Trust because it's it's actually – it's been out how many years? Um, almost 10 years. It came know. out in 2006. Yeah. And, but you, you've kind of hit the nerve of what the real principle is, right, of yeah. everything. We talk relationships. We talk, we talk productivity. We talk effectiveness. But the, one of the kind of universal truths is trust. If you have it, there's advantages. If you don't, there's consequences. Exactly. And, and the thing is, intuitively, we all kind of know it. Yeah. Don't we, yeah, Matt? Everybody. But, but we look right past it. We too often ignore it until we lose it. Exactly. And then we become painfully aware of it. So my whole focus is on saying, look, don't wait until it's lost to become aware of trust. Right. Become aware of it now. Focus on building it, growing it, expanding it, extending it, and even in some cases, restoring it. Now, yeah. How yeah. Can, you, can you restore you can. It just how? Yeah. Well, it's a good question, and I probably get that question more than any other. Do you really? Can you restore trust? And my answer is, in most situations, yes. I'll acknowledge there might be a few where you right. can't. Where you know, Ber- Bernie Madoff is going to have a hard time yeah, restoring trust, <laughs> right? Right? Because right. it's too egregious yeah. over too period, long a period mm-hmm. of time. But in most situations, you can. But here's the key principle. You can't talk yourself out of a problem that you behave yourself I into. I love that. Yeah. So the only way to restore trust is you've got to behave your way back into it. You that have will take to some change. You've got to change. Yeah. And it's got to be manifest and seen through your behavior, not just through your words, right. but through your actions, what yeah. people see over time. And But in most situations, you can restore it. And in fact, and sometimes you can even 
increase it yeah. after having lost it. Well, and if you couldn't restore it, there's still a thousand other principles you could live. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Be honorable, be respectful, be appreciative, be grateful, be understanding. That's right. And, and, and lead out also in extending trust to others. It's kind mm-hmm. of a, there's a reciprocity to trust. Interesting. Yeah. And when, when you give it, people receive it and they return it. And when you withhold it, withhold it. Yeah. So I work with leaders all over yeah. the world. And I find that the biggest reason why employees don't trust their management in a lot of kind of low trust cultures, low trust companies mm-hmm. – is first and foremost because the management doesn't trust the employees. Exactly. Yeah. And the employees watch them. You got to watch them. And you know what, Matt? The employees reciprocate that distrust right back Uh at the management. They're trying to get us. They're always changing the benefits. So you don't trust me, I don't trust you either. But it it can work the other direction too. You lead out as a leader with trust. You Uh extend it smartly. I'm not saying a blind trust. Yeah, don't be blind. Yeah, but smart trust means clear expectations. High accountability to what we're extending trust on, but we trust people. We, we, we demonstrate it. We show it. Mm. And when people get that kind of trust, the vast, vast majority are inspired by it. Oh, they, yeah. They rise to the occasion. They perform better and they give it back. Were you learning this as you were CEO at, at Covey? Yeah. Yeah, Leadership. absolutely. Because that, that was the most I felt empowered employment I had ever had where I knew they trusted me, not blindly. But if I blew it, I knew I'd hear about it, but I also knew they had my back. Yeah. And you grew that enough to sell it off to, I guess, Franklin Quest. Yeah. And, I mean, so you were just kind of working your way up that way. Absolutely. In fact, that's where kind of this this blinding flash of the obvious came to me that saying, look, this is not a little idea. This is a big idea. Yeah. Trust. If you can increase trust in any relationship, on a team, in a culture, with a partner, customer – it changes everything. Mm-hmm. And we all kind of intuitively know it, but we too often ne- neglect it or ignore it. But I, I began to see that not only was this a nice thing, it was an economic thing, Matt. It wasn't just good stuff, soft love, love. Yeah. It was it was financial. Yeah, it, we could put a value on it. You know why? Because when there's high trust, you can move faster and everything costs you less. Interesting. When there's low trust, it takes you longer. It costs you more. That's a tax, a low trust tax. Yeah. And you can put an economic value on that and see that there's a high cost of low trust. That's the speed. That's, that's, that's what I mean by the speed of trust. And uh. when there's high trust in a relationship, then suddenly you don't have to check and verify and validate. You just move fast. You know it. They're you good. Know it. And it's the speed of trust. Nothing is as fast as the speed mm-hmm. of trust. Uh-huh. And and there's real economics to it, and the opposite is true as well. I mean, look look at what happened after 9-11. Yeah. You know, our trust or confidence in airplane travel goes down. Oh. Can't have that. No, you get frisked now. That's right. So we increase security <laughs> and credit GSA. Slows it down. It takes you longer, costs you more. But that's what you have to do when you lose trust. Interesting. That's well, and tax. standing in line to be searched makes you not trust, right? So you're looking through the line like, oh, yeah, they're doing something wrong. That, that, that's the danger of a low-trust world. Because you start seeing <laughs> through that lens. That's right. We all, we all, none of us want to get burned. No, right. and, and it can be dangerous in some situations like transportation. That's why yeah, we it's do it. so important. But the problem with a low-trust world is everyone starts to become more careful, more cautious, more guarded, more yeah. cynical, more suspicious. And that tends to perpetuate more of the same. And you can find yourself... Be- you know, creating a vicious downward mm. cycle of distrust and suspicion, creating more distrust and suspicion. It's so interesting. And that one of your great quotes um, is low trust cultures pay high taxes. Absolutely. They, and that's the tax. The tax will be time, energy, money, resources. But all of that makes you less efficient. 
That's right. And it, it doubles the cost. It, yeah, it doubles the cost. You know, uh, when there's significant distrust, it literally can double the cost of doing business. Mm. And you have to take all these steps to compensate for it, which takes you time, costs you money. You also see, you also see a loss in of people's engagement, they yeah. disengaged, yeah. they'll turn over, especially performers. Performers want to be at a place where they're trusted. Totally. And when they're not, they'll go find a place where they are. Yeah. And and you'll see um, you know, the disempowerment and you'll you'll see fraud, you'll see politics and all kinds of stuff. Well, and your best up. ideas will leave your company. That's right. Because you don't trust me enough to grow them, so they'll leave the company, they'll They'll steal from the company. They'll slow. They'll sabotage. That's right. Those are all the low trust yeah. taxes. But the good news, Matt, as you know, is that the converse is equally real. Totally. And high trust cultures empower people. They engage people. They inspire people. They bring out the best in people. It enables people to collaborate. You know, you can't collaborate with people that you don't trust. No, exactly. You How do you? Right. You can coordinate. Right. But real collaboration requires a level of trust. And and the real challenge for organizations today is innovation. Yeah, and you need trust ultimately to innovate. You mm. got to do a lot of other things too, but if people are afraid to make a mistake, afraid to take a risk, quick to point the finger of blame, you know, or skirt things, hide things, yeah, you won't innovate. You won't no. sustain it. Wow, what does this? And I, I know you would want to be careful, but what does this mean about like presidency? Because trust is a big thing as we're looking at our presidents. You don't need to name names, but why? Why should the people care more? about the trustworthiness of their candidate, or should they? Well, absolutely. We need to have trust to have a democracy work. Right. Think about it. And that's one of the challenges we have as a society today is that um, you look at the data, most Americans have lost trust in government. Yeah. And and, um, and, and as a result, result, there's all this angst and anxiety about Mm -hmm. it, and we're trying to figure out how to close those gaps. And I find whenever it comes to the political discussion, um, people are so kind of jaundiced by their views. Their bias, yeah. It's hard to ever talk names without offending half your audience. Oh, right. But the principles are in a democracy, it requires a level of trust to really work the way it's intended to work. Mm -hmm. And and, – and you can't have trust without trustworthiness. And, and that's, you know, and I, I call it credibility, which is, implies both the, the character side yeah. and also the competence side. They've got to have a clue, yeah. but you've got to be honest. You've got to have both. And if, if, if you're honest but don't have a clue, it's not going to work. If, you, mm-hmm. if you're really competent but you're not honest or you don't care about people, well, we gotta get another it's opinion. not going to work either. That's right. Yeah. And so that combination of character and competence creates a credibility. That's a foundation on which you can build the trust. And then you add to it the behavior, you know, how, how people behave. Yeah. Do they talk straight, tell the truth, do they call things what they are? But also, do they clarify expectations? Do they keep their commitments? Do they listen first? There's a variety of behaviors that help people build trust. And it's true in politics and well, as well. But I find in politics, the biggest challenge is, is the counterfeit behavior. Oh, yeah. Is the spin instead of the straight talk. Mm-hmm. It's the hidden agenda instead of the transparency. Right. It's the over-promising and under-delivering instead of keeping commitments. And as a result, trust goes down. That's right. And there's data that came from GFK Research out of Germany, measured the least, the, the most, most and least trusted professions, <laughs> 30 countries. In 28 of the 30, the lowest was polit- politicians. Is it really? And it was second in the other two. Oh, my heavens. And, and uh, all around the world because it's just filled with this counterfeit behavior yeah. everywhere. So it's interesting. Yeah. I guess there's this universal need to supposedly, I guess, 
play a role and fake it or overpromise, underdeliver. Yeah, and it's like apparently everywhere. It is everywhere, and it's kind of part of the culture in some environments. In political environment, it's part of the culture. It's part of the culture. That's great. Um, we're going to take a break. More with Stephen M. R. Covey, author of the book The Speed of Trust. But really, uh, just a gem of a human and um, lives, he'll hate to have me say this, but does everything he can to live what he talks about. Uh, We'll have more um, from this wonderful uh, guy, Stephen M. R. Covey. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. you got to trust yourself. And uh, we're learning how to do it today with Stephen M. R. Covey. Uh, Stephen M. R. Covey is the author of the book Speed of Trust and uh, married to Jerry Covey. How long have you been married to Jerry, Stephen? Uh, 31 years this month. Ah, I hear great yeah. stuff about Jerry. She's fantastic. She's clearly my Best better half. Best decision you ever made in your life. <laughs> Absolutely, and it keeps paying dividends. <laughs> That's huge. How many kids again? Uh, we have five children. Five and beautiful from kids. From 29 down to 13. And how many grandkids? Three grandkids. Isn't that the best? Yeah, if I would have known how fun they were, I would have had them first. No, totally. <laughs> I wouldn't have even gone through my kids. I would have had my own grandkids. Absolutely. This is um, this book that you've written 10 years old now, million and a half copies sold, but it's in 22 languages, and you have trainers now all over the world teaching trust. And again, it's not – it seems so basic, but it, it is basic because it's a principle. But it is it is the thing. Yeah, it, it's so foundational that we look right past it. But here's what we've done in our training work, kind of three main points. The first, we show that trust is financial, mm-hmm. not just some warm and fuzzy. Yeah. It's economic. You can put a value on it. Second, we show how it's really the number one competency of leadership needed today. Why? Because of how it affects every other competency. It makes it better. It's a multiplier when you have it. It's a diminisher right. when you don't. Yeah. And then third... We show how trust is a learnable competency. It's something you can learn and do and create and grow, not as a manipulative technique, no, yeah. but rather as part of who you are. You be, but you can become conscious and deliberate and explicit about building trust on purpose yeah. and getting good it's at It's learnable. It's learnable. not just inherited. That's right. And that's what we sometimes think, that he's just got good genes yeah. or he's a lot like his dad, but it's – it can be learned. It's like emotional. It is emotional intelligence. It's it, trust intelligence. Trust intelligence. TQ. That's a great idea. And, and you need to coin that. Well, we have. Have you? We, we actually have a, yeah, a 360 profile called TQ, yeah. Trust Quotient. That's and it. It's trust intelligence. And, and it's learning how to build trust, becoming aware of this, and that you can build it on purpose mm. through your credibility, through your behavior. How do you do it? I mean, I know you have behaviors, like 13 behaviors. What What are some of the things that we should – like the low-hanging fruit yeah. almost that we could immediately start doing to impact trust. Well, here's the first thing. The first thing is to look in the mirror and start with yourself. Because everyone, when it comes to trust, they look at everyone around them and say, yeah, they need trust. They right. need trust. Yeah, and, oh, boy, yeah, she needs to hear that's this. That's right. She needs to hear this. He needs to hear this. That might be true. Yeah. But the best way we're going to help them hear it, let's model it. Let's lead out with it. It's kind of like the airplane analogy when yeah. it says when the oxygen masks fall down, put your own mask on first. Get it on. Before yeah, helping that's others. right. And that's how trust works. It's inside out. So you start with yourself. And self-trust precedes relationship trust. Hmm. In other words, do I trust myself? 
And do I give to my team, to my family, to my partner, a person that they can trust? And if you start there, it yeah. becomes more natural and abundant to build trust with others. But, but think about it, Matt. You'll have a hard time sustaining trust with anyone else if you don't trust yourself. Oh, no, totally. So self-trust is where you start. And if someone's saying, well, gosh, I'm struggling. And I, you know, where do That's I start? That's the problem. I can't trust, trust myself. I can't do what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. So here's a, here's a simple thing that each of us can start with. The fastest way to build trust with another person, with another person, is to make them a commitment and to keep it. Make another commitment and keep it. Repeat that process. Make, keep, repeat. Mm. You can build trust fast that way. Well, guess what, Matt? That's also the fastest way to build trust with yourself. Make yourself a commitment and keep it. Make another commitment, keep it. Repeat that process. Start with small things. It doesn't matter if it's bigger, anything. That's right. In fact, it's best to start with small things mm-hmm. so that you don't break it. Yeah. That you can, you're setting yourself up to win. Get up tomorrow morning. Yeah. I'm going to set seven. my alarm at six and go exercise. Mm-hmm. And then I do it. And then I do it again and again. From that, you start to sit, you get a sense of trust of self. That's a little thing. Yeah. But it starts to expand and you get a greater sense of clarity, integrity, and power. So learning to make and keep commitments to yourself is a great way to kind of get control of a uh, self-control that, that lends itself to a self-trust. Mm-hmm. And, and you're really trying to focus on both your, your character as well as your competence, kind of both yeah. halves of the equation. And that's what I mean by start with self, with your own credibility. And the more credible you are as a person, become as a person, the quicker, the faster you can build the trust. Mm. So credibility comes first or trustworthiness, you know, the character, the competence. But then you want to move into behavior. And behavior is what we do, how we do it. So in Speed of Trust, I talk about 13 behaviors that are common to high trust people. Things like talk straight, demonstrate respect, create transparency, listen first, keep commitments, extend trust. Just common sense Mm, things. But too often – we do the opposite oh. where, you know, maybe we're, we're – instead of talking straight, we're lying. But more commonly, we probably do the counterfeit. Instead of talking straight, we're spinning mm-hmm. and twisting. Yeah. Instead of being transparent, we have hidden agendas. And we overpromise, underdeliver instead of keeping commitments. Right. And that's what gets in the way yeah. of trust. And instead of listening, you're, you're preparing. You're preparing your response. Your retort. Right. right. Yeah. Instead yeah. of really understanding, real mm-hmm. empathy and understanding. And, and so – You could it, actually just go through that list one at a time and just work on one a month. Well, and that's kind of what we do is, is we say, look, there's all these behaviors. The, the, the behaviors are kind of like the Pareto 80-20 rule, mm-hmm. disproportionate in building trust or diminishing trust. And we look at the behavior, straightforward, you know, talk straight, you tell the truth, you build trust. The opposite, straightforward, you lie, you distract. What makes this hard is that counterfeit, the spin, the twist, the manipulating, the posturing. But you can kind of say, how can I get better at talking straight in a culture of spin? How can I do these things? And, and, And you can focus one behavior at a time and get really good at this and start to move the needle. Another key thing I find that can really help people is, is to declare your intent. By that, I mean let people know what you're doing, but also why you're doing it. Mm. Always give the why behind the what. So it might look like this. You say, hey, team or family or friend, here's what I'm trying to do. Here's why I'm trying to do it. Here's my agenda. I don't have a hidden agenda. I have an open agenda. I'm transparent. There's nothing to hide. If you do that, Matt, it affects how people interpret your subsequent behavior. Yeah. And when you don't declare your intent, you know what? People 
ascribe intent yeah. to you anyway. Exactly. And and malicious intent. Often maliciously yeah. or it could at, just be ignorant, but yeah. they're they they might protect themselves with maliciousness. At, at best they're guessing. Uh-huh, exactly. At worst it's malicious uh-huh. or, or they're projecting worst case or right, fears. Right. Don't have people guess. Tell them. Here's my agenda, here's my motive, I'm open, I'm transparent. It affects how people interpret your subsequent behavior. Mm. And you'll start to get the benefit of the doubt. You can start to build trust better and faster with people. So declare your intent as a leader, as a parent, as a, as a person in a relationship. And then when you're on the other side of the equation, always assume positive intent there as a go. starting yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, Be, and, yeah. That's a character act. Assume yeah. the best. Here. And, until proven otherwise. Right. It's just a better starting point. It seems, too, that if you declare your intent, you actually know your intent. So many times we, are, we don't even know what our real goal is. It's it's a great test. It's beginning with the end in mind. It begins with the end in mind. What is my intent? Declare it. And if you'd be embarrassed to declare it because it's so self-serving, then not. Let's then get bring rid of more, it. <laughs> bring more mutual benefit into it. Yeah. Bring more caring into it, so yeah. that you wouldn't be embarrassed. That's right. That's so. I, I say declaring your intent is the best t- in test of what your intent really is. That's true. If That's you'd be true. embarrassed to declare it, find more mutual benefit, more caring. Yeah. Bring that into it. If you wouldn't be embarrassed, declare it. You watch what happens. Well, then you also have to live up to it. So if my intent is seemingly pure, then I can't go ugly in the conversation following. That's right. Everyone somewhere would say, I thought this was our intent. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah. It kind of elevates everything that we're trying to do. It makes you be transparent now. And transparency is one of the key behaviors that builds trust. This is a practical way of putting it into action. Declare your intent. I love that. You can do that every day. Mm -hmm. And you're not doing it as a technique to manipulate people, but no, as part of how you build trust as a human being. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, I can't put enough emphasis on assuming positive intent as a parent, yeah. as a friend, as a partner. I'll tell you just a yeah, quick story on this. My, so my dad and my mom, my dad accidentally <laughs> left my mom on the side of the I road. I remember. <laughs> tell this story. Up in Idaho, right? Up, up in Idaho. I was driving back from <laughs> vacation. My mom was driving. This my dad great. was sleeping. My mom pulls over because she's tired, so my dad gets in to drive. He he, uh, <laughs> my mom gets out and she says, "Hey, can you put the chassis down so I can get in the back seat better?" She closes the door. My dad, when he hears the door slam, thinks that she's in the car because he's half asleep. Yeah. You know, he, he just woke sleeping. up. He starts to take off. My mom's <laughs> chasing down the road, saying, "Hey, Stephen, 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 come back!" He just takes off on the road and and leaves her. And then someone on the other side of the road sees this happening. Calls the highway patrol to report that he just he saw just threw a man, yeah. <laughs> abandoned a woman on the side of the road. And he just oh, no. witnessed it, you know. And so, the highway patrol comes and you know what happened, man. Well, my my husband left me, but then she added, "But he thinks I'm in the car." <laughs> that is and, great. And, and the highway patrol says, "says Why would he think you're in the car? You're right here." No, no, trust me. You he don't know I'm my in husband. The car. <laughs> he thinks I've fallen asleep, and he's trying to make really good time while I'm sleeping. That's great. <laughs> no, but she. You know, then they came back and they kind of realized what had happened. But my mother's starting point was not, you know, you what fool, a dummy. you jerk. Yeah. It was, he thinks I'm in the car. Beautiful. She loves my dad. My dad loves her, you know, when, when yeah. he's living. And and, uh, and she assumed positive intent. And it just changes things versus, you know, yeah. starting with that negative intent. Yeah. And think of that with your kids as a parent. Think of that in a relationship. It's a better starting point until mm-hmm. proven otherwise. Well, and imagine your dad when he gets he got pulled over. Didn't he? Is well, that he how came they found back. it? Oh, he did. They he realized. Him. They called oh, that was him. it. The yeah. highway patrol and called him and said, hey, Mr. Covey, <laughs> Hello? where are you? <laughs> and, and, and he actually said this. He goes, gosh, I don't know, officer. I've been, I've been asleep until about 10 minutes ago. Here, let me ask my, my wife. Where are we, honey? And then he turns around, Sandra, Sandra, where are we, Oh, Sandra? that's great. And, and, then, and then he all of a sudden says, hey, officer, my wife is missing. <laughs> <laughs> 
Because no, yeah, I've got her right, right here. <laughs> Did um, see what's so powerful though is he must have felt so ashamed and like embarrassed, maybe. But when he hears the story from her view, he realizes they lost nothing in this weird moment because of the trust. Trust was so high. It just efficiently was just a good story. That's right. It became a funny story. They trust each other. There was positive intent. There never even was a moment of Isn't that beautiful? Of but, you know, if there's low trust in yeah. a relationship. Talk about that. Are, what well, do you do if your husband has been a jerk for years and there is low trust? Yeah. How do we rebuild that? And to what degree do I trust and then realize – I, got, I guess some of it's just working on me. I got to get my stuff, myself Look, strong enough. That, that, that's why I always highlight that it's smart trust. Because, yeah. you know, in a relationship especially, someone could be too trusting right. where they're being taken advantage of and, you know, stepped on time and again, in which case that's not smart at some point. Mm-hmm. And, and um, but again, so first step, start with yourself. Even when the other person is the primary mm-hmm. offender, because you need to grow, you That's need right. to you need to have the trust for whatever comes ahead. That's right, and you'll gain you'll gain more clout, more influence, more credibility if you start with yourself, yeah. your character, your competence. You'll have more influence and ability to affect another person. But then, secondly, you might make a a behavior specific request of somebody, where you might say, "Hey, with me, you know, just be open and transparent. It's better than having a hidden agenda." With B. You know, don't make me a commitment you're not going to keep. It just works better that way. Yeah. And what I try to do is I try to separate the person from their behavior. And rather than attacking the person, instead I address the behavior and say, hey, you know what? Talk straight, you know, be straight with me. Yeah. Be open with me. Tell me the truth. You know, come straight to me if you have a problem instead of going behind my back. I make a behavior-specific request, and I give people the space to behave their way out of it. Mm-hmm. Look, some – May not. Some can't. They can't. Yeah. They're just not they trustworthy. Won't. They don't want to. They don't want to go there. And in a case like that, you're not going to restore the trust. No. And it just might be that there's a low trust relationship or maybe the relationship breaks up. Right. But in other situations, you're allowing people also the chance to grow, to improve, mm-hmm. and, and to say, hey, I am not my behavior. I can choose to behave in a way that builds trust. I wasn't aware I was behaving in ways that was diminishing it. Sometimes they may or may not be aware. But the point is you're trying to say trust is learnable. Yeah. Through our credibility, through our behavior, and it's and it's necessary regardless. Absolutely, whether we save a marriage or not, whether we can close the deal or not, we if you lose your trust, you lose what? If you lose your trust, it affects everything else you're trying to do. It is yeah. a diminisher. It is a tax on everything you're doing as a person, as a leader, as a parent. Yeah, and and um, it takes you longer. It costs you more, but also it has a debilitating effect yeah. on every aspect of your life. But I'm a Matt, I'm not Pollyannish on this, mm-hmm. naive thinking. You get you it. Just every, have trust everywhere. But I am a believer that we can behave our way into greater trust. And I, I saw it happen with my son. Yeah. When, when he turned 16, he was going to drive. And is this said, Britain? Yeah. No, this is actually <laughs> oh, and, okay. this is my Stephen, okay. my oldest. And yeah. He was excited to drive. This is a few years ago. And I said, my wife and I sat down with him and said, hey, driving's a privilege, not a right. So we went through the rules, you know, be safe, go to the speed limit, yeah. wear seatbelts. Well, after 30, day, 30 days of driving, you know, it was midnight on a Friday night. I hear the phone ring. My wife answers the phone. I hear her say, well, I'll let you talk, I'll let you talk to his father, officer. Oh, no. <laughs> and sure enough, it's the, the police. He's been pulled over for speeding, as in going 83 miles an hour in a 25-mile-an-hour in a oh, zone. Oh, Stephen. And, and uh, you know, he's a good kid. Yeah, he's a great kid. But he just had teenage judgment, you mm-hmm. know. And just he said, hey, Dad, I was trying to get home for a curfew, so I had to hurry really fast. <laughs> well— 
We played this thing out. We went to court. The judge fined him $555. We made him pay it, took away all of his savings. Yeah. But then the judge did not suspend his license, did not. So guess who did? You did. That's right. Dad, Dad did. and mom did. That's great. Why? Because we wanted him to trust us. Yeah. And we felt like if we didn't hold him accountable to what we mutually agreed yeah. to, he wouldn't trust us. That's and true. neither would his siblings. Well, you know what? That was hard on him. He was embarrassed with his friends. It was hard on everyone. But after several months, he came back to me and said, Dad, I'm ready to drive again. I asked, are you clear about the rules? <laughs> he replied, I've never been more clear about anything in my life. <laughs> well, Matt has had a great end. That is cool. He became a model driver ever since. And we, how do we know? Well, we saw it, but we also heard from his friends, from his friends' parents. When they're going somewhere, their parents would ask, hey, where are you going? It's, and they'd hear, don't worry, Dad. Don't worry, Mom. Stephen we're Curry. going with Covey. <laughs> it's all good. We are driving way below the speed That's limit. So you know, we're, we're wearing seatbelts. This is no yeah. fun at all. But he earned that reputation. What he did was he behaved himself out of the problem that he yeah. had behaved himself and into. And he became, he changed. He changed. And the That's trust only went back to where it was. It went yep. higher than it ever was. And you facilitated it, that we can facilitate it by living it, by being it. By living it, by being it, and by giving people a chance to yeah. behave their way back into it. Stephen M. R. Covey. Folks, the book is The Speed of Trust. If you go to speedoftrust.com, you can find out more about it. Just You can find the book everywhere. Stephen, thank you. Great to be with you. Brilliant. Matt. Love you. You're Thanks. awesome. We'll take a break, folks. Come back and uh, wrap up the second hour of The Matt Townsend Show. Remember... There's good in the world. You have to go looking for it, or you can also become a part in creating it, as Stephen's been talking about. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. I'm telling you, uh, when you hear a good principle, a true principle, doesn't it it resonate? And it's not, again, it might feel like, and Stephen brought this up, he's not trying to be Pollyanna-ish. He's not trying to just be, you know, everything's rosy because life's not rosy, except when you understand a principle, you can live it, right? When you understand gravity, you can then align your life to gravity. Gravity is going to operate whether you like it or not. So is trust. If you don't have trust, it's going to cost you. It's going to be harder and more exhausting. And what I found personally, anytime I'm doing something that's against my character, I pay for it in a major way because emotionally I lose my own sense of trust in self, right? I don't even believe I can deliver on what I want to deliver on. So don't don't let it get away from you. Ask yourself, what is the most important thing you need to do? To grow your trust. We just listened to an expert in a field on trust, and now I need you to make sure you do something as you walk away. What's one thing you can do today to improve your sense of trust in self and your trust uh, and the ability to have others trust you because you're trustworthy? Make some decisions. Make some ideas. Commit to do something today, and let's get it done today. And then notice what it feels like. Ah, peace. The peace that comes by living true principles. Powerful. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We we have little myths, little lies. I don't know what else to call them. Things that we think have to be a certain way. And um, they're, 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 they're lies that we tell ourselves that actually make it so we lose some self-esteem. We lose some self-worth. You know, like... All, one, one of the ones that I've already talked about is natural gifts are the only real gift, right? So 
if you don't do something naturally and you're not just naturally gifted at something, then it's then you obviously you're not as good as the one that actually has hard time learning math and then you work your way through it and then you figure it out. That's not as that's not as powerful in our world as just as the one that just naturally gets it. Right. So we have that belief. Another belief is that we can't handle certain things. Another belief or a lie that we kind of tell ourselves is that some things are just black and white. Right. They're just black and white. And it's it's either it's A or B. It's good or bad. It's it's right or wrong. Right. It's it's yes or no. It's up or down. It's it is what it is. It's just this black or white thing. And the irony about black or white is that it's all right in the eye of the beholder. And it also isn't it also determined isn't the judgment of whether something's right or wrong determined also in the depth of the understanding as to why the act took place. So isn't it true that the more you understand somebody the more something doesn't necessarily become right or wrong. And isn't it also true that some actions are wrong and yet the motive behind it wasn't as wrong or vice versa? And so I, I like that. I mean, I'm a big believer, you know, God is black or white, right? Except, you know, um, God also has in-depth understanding of the motive and the intent and the heart and the experience of what somebody has gone through before they do what they do. And I'm assuming they're not going to be judged just on the letter of the law, but maybe the spirit of the law as well. Life is pretty paradoxical, really. It's I've noticed that in sometimes the hardest things that I go through also have a very easy component to them. Or sometimes things are fun, but they're also complicated. And sometimes being complicated makes things more fun. And other times, having something complicated makes things less fun. And I've noticed that sometimes people can be nice and simultaneously they can hurt you. And you can love them and not want to be with them all the time. So things aren't always black and white. And I, I want us all to kind of know that because the minute you assume everything is black or white, then you might be setting yourself up for the fact that everything in, on earth has to be good or bad. And everything on earth has to be now or never, right? We kind of dichotomize and we make everything an either or when many times there is an and involved. You can do both and you can love somebody deeply and I don't need to be with you all the time. And that doesn't make it bad, right? So be careful of being too fixated on black or white thinking. Also, another one is everyone else has their um, has their act together. That is such an illusion, such a lie. When you look around and as somebody that sits down with four or five people a day whose lives are really strained and they're having a difficult uh, time in their life, most people don't have their act together. Most people just are hanging on by a thread. Most of us, you know, can't put it all together. Physically, socially, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, we just can't do it all. And so the illusion that everyone else is doing so much better than you is nothing more really than just an illusion. It's not real. It doesn't, it's not the way it looks. So someone might be the most incredible, you know, nicest person in the world and they can't do their taxes and they owe 10 grand in taxes. And 
they give a ton to charity. And they don't, you know, they don't do everything they can at church to be the best they can be. This can all exist. And they're still, but they still look like they're perfect. The reality is, is we we don't need to compare. So one of the rules is just lose the comparison. You're not here to compare your game against everyone else's game. You're here to find your happiness, your sense of meaning, your sense of purpose. There's more to life than, you know, pretending like we've got it all together. We just sometimes, and you'll notice when you're really drowning in it, you could care less if everyone else thinks something, right? You're just trying to be alive and and be you. And the last myth I want to blow up is this idea that sometimes we just believe we're really lucky. I'm just so lucky. Um, Some of us believe like there's no way in the world, it's called imposter syndrome, that we actually are not sure that we should, we're not good enough to deserve what we're getting in life. So we might just phrase our life and our great advancements in life as just pure luck. I mean, if you want to attribute it to something, attribute it to blessings and God, if you want to attribute it to something, but don't just attribute it to some random thing of luck. Because the downside to being lucky is that if you're not lucky, then I guess you have no responsibility to do anything except just pray for luck, I guess. When uh, when you start to recognize that a lot of my life is because I work hard and I'm blessed from above. So count your blessings and work like a dog. That might be the best equation um, to explain your luck. You're not lucky. You're not an imposter to be so gifted and blessed. You've been blessed from on high and you've worked hard. And when you're blessed from on high and you work hard, things happen. And just as you could be lucky, tomorrow it could turn. And so let's still seek for further blessings from on high, and let's still try to uh, work our way through it. We'll take a break, folks. That's hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show. Remember, we can't do it without you. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Technology and family, they go hand in hand, right? I mean, when I was a kid, grab a stick, go hit a tree. <laughs> that was my childhood. Stick tree games. But now our kids can have iPhones, iPads. Our toddlers can have them. I mean, there's so much going on for a kid today with technology. And the kids want them, right? They're begging for a phone at age eight. How come, how come, how come Jake gets a phone? Well, Jake's 18. Jake's 20. Jake, Jake's, you know, in college. Well, I know, but... I go to school. How do you keep your kids from getting sucked into this crazy vortex called tech? And uh, when you think about it, how do we make sure that we raise these children in a healthier family-oriented way? Especially when you talk about um, we don't have any clue what an iPhone – is going to do long-term to a child. The social skills lost, we don't know. The memory, 
the attentions, the ability to focus. We don't know the long-term impact of what this technology will do on our kids. We've only had it for a few years, right? We do know, according to some research uh, by Microsoft about attention, that our kids are losing. Their attention span is dropping. In fact, one of the studies basically compares you know, our attention span to being um, – I think it's about eight seconds. We have an attention span of about eight seconds. The average, I think, goldfish has about a nine-second attention span. They can focus on something for about nine seconds before they're like, whoa, shiny thing. And part of that is probably because we can just defer, right? We can go right back to our cell phone. And my kids, for example, they know they don't need to memorize a lot of stuff because they just can find it on their phone. So how do we integrate the technology of our, of our lives and keep our family um, healthy, keep them focused, and keep them safe? That's uh, that's really what we want to talk about in this hour of the show. Also, one of the um, the big things we we really deal with, and I deal with it a lot with my family, is how do I discipline around it? Because I, if I take my kid's phone away, I immediately have all the power in the house. I mean, I can get my kids to do anything with their phone because that's the great source and the great anchor. And I'm not sure if that's good or not. I mean, at some point. Is if that's my only access tool to have any power with my child, then I might be setting myself up. So we want to find other ways to connect. And in a few minutes, we'll be talking with Janelle Burley Hoffman about um, the the importance of of really managing your technology with your children and with your families. But one of the first things I've realized in my own life is if I don't have the discipline to manage myself, I won't have the discipline to manage my child. <laughs> And I notice it's harder and harder for me to actually just turn off the device and not to just naturally go to it. It's something that to me seems like I naturally just defer to the, the phone. So one of the big things I've I've been a big um, proponent of is let's start having a fast uh, where we just we just turn off the tech and we go without the tech. Let's just turn it off and see. If we can go a week, um, we've had, in fact, we've talked to our own, you know, Spencer Linton, who's uh, on BYU Sports Nation, and he lost his phone um, when he was on a trip with his wife somewhere. Somebody actually stole his phone, and he was without a phone for four or five days. And he said, honestly, it made their trip better. Having the phone stolen was difficult. That's hard. But he said it made our family trip better because it allowed us to spend time as a couple just phoneless and focusing on each other. He and his wife, I think, lost their phones. So do you have to have your phone stolen? Is that the best way, the fastest way to uh, to be able to handle technology? And do you just look at yourself? Do you have the discipline yourself to to turn off the phones, to take the phones? Do you have the ability to, to not have to have the phones being a major part of your life? And again, I don't want to be anti technology. I think it's fascinating and I think it's incredible what's happening. And yet we also still need to relate, right? At some point, we still need to uh, to learn how to be healthier and, and I guess actually more effective with our technology. 
For example, uh, some research came out talking about our children. Did you know that our children open – they have an open rate of their text messages of about 99 percent of text messages are read. 99 percent of the messages that they receive every year – I mean every day are read by the child. And when you think about that, I mean, we're so frustrated by our kids because they don't do what we want them to do, except, and we can't even get them to pay attention to us, except they will open all of their text messages. How on earth are we supposed to succeed with our kids when they don't even listen to us, when we don't even have that power with them, that influence with them? You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. It's a different day. It's a different age. And I've talked about it on the show before about how many times I've told my kids something and then they Googled it and they corrected me. No, Dad, it's 184,000 miles. Be quiet. Just be quiet. Do you remember back in the day when you didn't have to be exactly accurate? Because the latest... Encyclopedia Britannica you had was 14 years old? Nope, not anymore. Now, folks, you got to deliver. Now you got to be able to hit it right on the mark, and you got to hit it on the mark every single time. So technology, it's not going away, and I do believe that there is a time and a place where we're going to have to figure our lives out enough to start leading the technology instead of letting it lead us and beat us up. So let me give you some tips and some tools for um, for leading the technology in your life, in your family, not just reacting to it, not just having to take it the way it is. Let's just teach you some basic skills for how you and your family can manage the technology <clears throat> in your life. First thing, I would make it an overt conversation. I would bring it out of the darkness. I would throw it up right into the middle of a conversation with your family. And I would simply say, technology, I'm worried, folks. I'm worried, kids. What, what, what do you see happening with it? And if I were you, I'd try to get your kids to start teaching you about what's really happening with technology. Because to let you in on a crazy little secret, you don't have a clue what's really going on with technology because your kids know stuff you don't even think is possible. They have information you didn't even know was accessible. They have tools they're using that they don't, you don't even, you think you know, you think you know, you think you know what Snapchat is? You don't even know how they're using it, I bet. So what's cool is when I open a discussion up with my kids, some of the younger ones will tell us stuff that the older ones are doing. Some of the older ones will tell us stuff that their friends are doing. And it opens up a whole new conversation that for all of us becomes pretty enlightening. Um, and I, I'd even overtly talk about uh, issues like pornography and what happens when they see pornography online, what they should do. Um, I wouldn't just demonize it. I wouldn't just sit there and blow it up and make it – you know, this horrible thing. I mean, it's horrible, but what I would teach my kids is what to do when they see it. I wouldn't just teach them that it's just gross and horrible. I would teach them that when you see it, do this. Turn off the computer, come and find me, and we'll we'll get rid of it. 
Don't be afraid. I don't because the minute you demonize it, folks, and the minute you start making it a horrible, horrible thing that shames the person, all of a sudden they're going to take it underground and you're not going to have access to that child. The downside to um, like pornography, for example, is many of the people that are actually using it and becoming addicted to it, they are they have anxiety. They're they're anxious and they're using it as a anti-anxiety. They're using it as something that will calm them down, make them relax. It's the brain chemistry behind a lot of this technology that's the problem. It's not always the content. Like we always talk about the violence of the video games. But violence aside, those kids playing video games, it's medicating their brain. That's why they're doing it is because it medicates them. It numbs them. So we can argue about violence all day or we can argue about pornography all day. In my world, I'm more worried about the medication effect. There's a reason they're choosing to go be medicated by that. So watch out for it and be careful because if you shame your child, if you shame your family too much about this technology or about what you saw on their phone and you shame them and you call them evil and you call them dirty and guess what's going to happen? They will go underground. They will take the issue and they'll hide it underground. And the minute it goes underground, you're not going to be able to deal with it as well. So instead, just address it full on. Talk about the impact of it. Talk about what happens when we get um, caught up into some technology. Talk about what uh, about balance. Talk about moderation. Talk about why it's important to be able to read and why it's important to read books, not just play video games. Video games are great. And I'm going to bet, folks, that our future is going to be filled with video game opportunities. More and more occupations are going to be coming from these video gaming industries because a lot of our interface, a lot of the ways that we're going to interact with computers are going to be coming from some of the ways that they're already doing video gaming. We already know that we can now have drone pilots that are video game experts that can now go work with the military and fly drones all over the world. Well, yeah, but that's only one thing. Well, except that we also found out that there's technology teams that can go get scholarships at universities around the country by playing on a video game team. And video or uh, universities are now sponsoring video game teams and scholarships are being won. So your kid could actually go on scholarship to a university, a nice university, because they're a video gamer. What? That's not even a sport. You know what? It is. It's starting to be. Technology, folks, it's not going away. And we have to play it at a different level than we've ever played it before. So be careful. Be careful of demonizing them. Be careful of demeaning or shaming your child because because they play video games. Be careful of shaming them if you've caught them looking at pornography or something like that. I get that that's your instinct, and I get that it's against your value system. I'm totally with you. And the shame is going to do two things. It's going to probably increase the likelihood of them going back to it to medicate. It's also going to um, end up taking the, the issue, the sin, the, the tech addiction or whatever underground. So be careful. Be careful. There's really not a good purpose to ever shame someone. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, and again, I'm a big believer that many of us 
need therapy, I guess, but maybe more of us just need information. We need the tools. We need education. And that's not always easy to get. Um, So one of the things, no matter what you're doing, there are a ton of resources online to manage depression. And pretty much everywhere you go, you're going to be able to either get medicine. I mean, that's the easiest thing really nowadays to get are some meds to deal with depression. But invariably, anytime you're on the meds, you should also be taking classes, skills, so you can build the skills to manage your depression as well. I'd also talk to anybody you go to about the ability to uh, learn how to do other things so we can eventually come off medicine. Um, sometimes medicine might be a, a pretty quick way to fix a problem quickly if it's if it's pretty serious. But I'm also a big believer, let's, let's get off the meds if we can. And if we can't, let's minimize some of the, the use of the meds if we can as well. So remember, there's resources out there, but every one of us are going to be battling something. And if it's not you, it will be your spouse or it will be your children or it will be your son-in-law or your daughter-in-law or your grandchildren. We've all got to learn a little bit more about mental health. That's one of the big issues we're seeing just simply with some of the tragedies that have happened, that uh, the German wings crash. You know, mental health is something that we have to be able to talk about, and we we can't keep the stigma going uh, for mental health. It's It truly is in our churches, in our neighborhoods. It needs to be something we can mention and, un- and understand without the judgment. I mentioned earlier that I, I had a client whose spouse just thought it was just pure weakness. You know, anybody with character can just dig down and hammer through a little depression. <sighs> now, that's great until you have it, right? Until you have it, until you lose your job and then you're feeling some situational depression and you feel like a failure. So figure it out for yourself. If you also know that you have some issue going on, attention deficit, whatever, anxieties, depressions, mood disorders, please go start uh, gathering the data and the information you need. Once you're less ignorant, then we start to build a plan about it. How is how is this impacting me? How is it impacting my family? And usually you'll never find a perfect fit, right? There's not going to be this one piece of the puzzle that perfectly fits in and fixes uh, that that you know that vessel. So what we need is maybe a mix of five or six or ten different plans in order to create a customized piece. The problem is, is I can't customize the piece for you. No one can, because eventually you're the only one that's going to be reading your emotions. You're the one that has to figure out what you are feeling and how how it's impacting you. So the sooner we get on this, the better. And one reason I would seriously attack uh, your mental health issues, because those are issues that are going to be handed down. Because the generations before us didn't talk about mental health as much as our current generations are. We didn't know that we had a ticking time bomb inside of us. We didn't know that we had this depression. We didn't know that we had anxiety that kept us away from doing things that were social or whatever. We didn't know we had this. But you do. And if you now know it, you can actually start, I firmly believe, to educate and to inform yourself, to figure out your diet, your sleep, to figure out the whole code so that it impacts you less. Then you can teach your children how to do the same thing. This is where the traditions of the fathers can be handed down in a positive way. In a positive way. If, same way if you know you have diabetes running in the family or cancer issues 
then this is where we need to hand down the skills. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, when you're angry, stressed, or under pressure, you might do things you regret. Maybe you lash out at someone, say something you don't mean, or completely ignore the people who matter most to you. Think of a toddler who doesn't get his candy bar in the grocery store. One small thing can trigger an outrageous tantrum. That toddler may flail on the ground, shout, cry, stomp his feet. Sometimes when we have stressful situations, we can revert back to our childish ways and show similar toddler-like reactions. Joining us now is Dr. Stephen Stosny. Uh, he's uh, an expert in family violence. He's a consultant as well there and uh, founder of Compassion Power, which is a great website, CompassionPower.com. Dr. Stosny is a, a, a wonderful um, educator but also researcher. Um, he is the author of a new book, Soar Above, How to Use the Most Profound Part of Your Brain Under Any Kind of Stress. Dr. Stephen Stosny, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Oh, it's my pleasure. We love having you, and I love your insight. Uh, I was excited when I heard this new book was coming out because this gets kind of to the root of of maybe some uh, abusive but also childlike behavior that we, we see maybe in all of us. Yes, we, we all retreat to the toddler brain under stress. The difference with abusers and the rest of us is abusers violate boundaries mm. when they do it. Uh, most of us just stamp our feet yeah. and, and do self-destructive and, things. We don't hit anybody. Yeah, we fall to the ground and want our candy bar. You, yeah. I loved this article that you uh, wrote about kind of the toddler brain um, and politics because we, we do see some weird stuff going on in our political worlds and just – I mean, even in in people that are uh, fighting at certain, uh, uh, you know, um, candidates, I don't know what they call meetings or uh, people that are that are just choosing a little more violence or tantrum throwing. Is that also still part of that toddler brain? It sure is. Uh, See, the toddler brain is fully I call it that because it's fully developed by age three. It's basically an alarm system. It just says something is wrong. But it doesn't have any capacity to improve it. Huh. Just an alarm, because toddlers can't right. solve problems. They need to sound an alarm for somebody else to do it. So they, uh, in the toddler brain, you're incapable of seeing any other perspective but your own. You don't even really see that. It's all uh, gut feelings. So everything is black and white. Everything is oversimplified. Uh, and you, if you don't. Give me the candy. You're the enemy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I guess we 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 you know we blame each other, and we it's it really does look like our political world. There's so many that just can only see it one way. And I guess is this a survival technique then? No, it's not a survival technique so much as a, a developmental stage that people for, forge habits into. In other words, when, uh, the the two and a half to three year old is the first time in their lives in their first realizing they're different from their parents. So they have to push away. Before that, they feel merged with them. Mm-hmm. They think you can read their minds, and you're feeling the same thing they're feeling. But about two, two and a half, three, it varies with different children. 
they realize they have their own agenda and it's different from yours. <laughs> but but they don't know who they are. Psychologists call that a negative identity. They don't have an identity, but they know who they're not. They're not whatever you want. So their favorite two words are no and mine. And the political discourse is pretty much mm. mine or my way and no. Yeah. <laughs> you can reduce almost everything they say to mine and no. That's, it's, and it's interesting. It is a negative identity. They don't know what they are, but they know what they're not. Right. Uh, they're not anybody else they're running against. <laughs> That's so true. And, and that it's, but it also, I guess, teaches us at some point we've got to move out of the toddler brain to the, I guess, the adult brain, which is, I guess that's the prefrontal cortex that we hear so much about. Yeah, the upper prefrontal cortex, that's unique to humans. The toddler brain is common to all mammals. It's fully, not fully developed till uh, 28. It regulates emotions, impulses, gives sophisticated thought and analysis, judgment, planning, self-reflection, mm. the ability to know what you're doing and what you're feeling and how people are reacting to you and the ability to see other perspectives. Uh, the pr- problem with, and, and most people live most of their day in the prefrontal cortex. Hmm. The problem is under stress, we retreat to that toddler brain. A lot of research shows that under stress, all animals, including humans, retreat to habits learned very early in life. Uh, and the emotion regulation habits are blame, deny, and avoid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is, that That's is what toddlers do. You, yeah, you totally. Really broken. You ask the toddler who did it. He'll blame someone else. My daughter was an only child. She used to say, "Jimmy, do it." That was her imaginary Jimmy, friend. <laughs> Jimmy's not even a real person, but he <laughs> no, did it. Not a real person. So it's blame. Uh, I don't know. Denial or their kids hiding, avoidance. Interesting. So it, we go to that blame, denial, avoidance under stress, and, and the uh, stress could just be. You know, your spouse wanting to talk. Yes, it can be. If you don't want to talk, it can anything that you don't want to do or that you're not uh, uh, prepared to do. Uh, the other thing about the toddler brain is it's stimulated by physiological states. Anybody who has a toddler knows that yeah. they're tired, hungry, <laughs> uh, distracted. Uh, those are danger areas. So the toddler brain gets invoked when we're tired, when we're hungry, when we're working too much. Yeah. That, that's when it's more likely to get invoked. Oh, that is so true. So, I mean, this is what I love about what you do, Stephen, because you've worked with prisoners who have been in uh, um, because of anger issues and abuse issues. And you've kind of there. there's a better explanation for it than just people are bad. Uh, you're finding the science behind it and kind of the spirit to fix it. Yes, well, the spirit comes from the motivation to practice the skills to invoke the uh, adult brain under stress. It is just a skill. Mm-hmm. Uh, anybody can develop it, but it, the only way the brain acquires a habit is through repetition. So you have to practice invoking the, the adult brain under stress. And that's where the spirit comes in, give you the motivation to do the hard practice mm-hmm. to be able to do it consistently. Does, does the spirit of compassion come um, from the high brain, from the prefrontal cortex? or yes. where is that it? Yes, because compassion requires understanding the perspective of the other person and sympathizing with it when it's different from your own. Hmm. 
toddlers can't do that. They can empathize. If you're feeling what they're feeling, they can empathize with that. But compassion is a higher order uh, human emotion that comes from the upper prefrontal cortex because you can sympathize with some kind of emotional state or vulnerability, pain or suffering that you don't share. Hmm. And that really is, that's the nail. That's the key. Right. So if you're angry at me and I'm compassionate, I can see that that you're feeling hurt in some way. If I'm just empathic and I'm not angry, (laughs) then I'm not going to see that you're hurt. I'm going to see that you're aggressive and I'm going to get angry back. Wow. And that's, I guess, why the book's called Soar Above. We've got to get above our thinking state, our state of being to a higher state. Yeah, uh, but it, but it's only habit. It's not uh, uh, it, it's not that you're we're not in the adult brain most of the time. We are. Yeah, yeah. It's just a habit that under stress we go into the blame, deny, avoid when we most need to improve, appreciate, connect, or protect. Those four are the adult coping mechanisms. Yeah, improve our situation, appreciate what's I guess happening, connecting, and protecting. Right. Any one of those invokes the adult brain. We become adults. Uh, the the moment that being protective is more important than being protected. Hmm. Children need to be protected. Adults need to protect. Yeah, I guess that does, huh? That puts us. Then we're yeah we're in a more of a I guess a, a service role versus a selfish role. Uh, yet service in, in a higher order, yeah, yeah. not not in servitude, right. but, uh, you know, in serving you, the sea of humanity or God or, or mm-hmm. something higher than the self. It's powerful. Um, let's do this, Steve. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Stephen Stosny. Uh, you got to go to his website, CompassionPower.com. And go look at his books. I mean, one of his favorite, my favorite books is how to how to uh, talk. What's it called? What is it, Stephen? How to how to improve your marriage without, without talking without yeah. talking. I mean, it was brilliant. <laughs> like every guy I know is like perfect. <laughs> we don't even have to talk about it. But there's so much information that you can understand um, and change behavior, like we're learning now. Get in our high brain. If some of us would just sit and and just think for a minute before we got into our fights or our discussions, we might actually get ahead and get some compassion before we lower the boom. We'll take a break, folks. Come back more with Dr. Stephen Stosny and his new book, Soar Above, How to Use the Most Profound Part of Your Brain Under Any Kind of Stress. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Friends to the Matt Townsend Show, uh, joined on the phone by Dr. Stephen Stosny from CompassionPower.com. He uh, is a world-renowned uh, relationship expert and compassion expert. His heart is enormous, and uh, also his depth of knowledge, I think, is incredible. He's helping us understand about the power we have as humans to use really a uh, Probably, I guess you call it the most profound part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, so we don't get run over by our little toddler brain. Is that right, Stephen? Yeah, that's that's right. One of the uh, esteemed neurologists, Joe Ledoke, came up with this term that under stress, the 
uh, limbic system, which is the toddler brain, hijacks the prefrontal hmm. cortex. I like love that term. I do too. I do it. too. It's like comes in with a gun and says, "Take this plane to yep. Cuba." <laughs> and then we're off to Cuba. It's yeah. but it really is that. I guess it gets hijacked, and then you're saying then we just naturally once we're kind of hijacked chemically and I mean and emotionally, we um, we then just get into a habit form of. Uh, blaming, of denying what's going on, avoiding it, fighting, flighting, probably? Yes. The, the, habit, the hijacking makes the prefrontal cortex serve the alarm instead of justifying Interesting. it, instead of regulating it. See, if a smoke alarm goes off, you don't run out of the house screaming, we're all going to die. Yeah, right. You, you check to see if there's a fire. <laughs> and if there is, you put it out. It's probably just somebody cooking or smoking. Yeah, yeah. Because it's calibrated to give false alarms. But in the toddler brain, the alarm becomes reality. It's not a signal about a possible reality. In other words, if yeah. I'm angry at you, you must be doing something wrong. And all I'm going to do is find evidence that you're doing something wrong, and I'm going to completely ignore evidence to the contrary. If I'm afraid, you must be threatening. Hmm. If, I'm, uh, if I'm uninterested, you must be boring. Right. Yeah, it just jumps to this automatic conclusion, and then it validates it. Yeah, the feeling becomes reality. Feelings are not reality. They're signals about a possible reality, and the prefrontal cortex has to test the reality. Interesting. So feelings are different than emotions? Well, feelings are a component of emotions. Uh, emotions have feelings. That's a conscious awareness. Of, of what's going on. Uh, it has arousal, which is mostly physiological. It, it sends action signals to the muscle groups and organs of the body. And it has a motivation. It's preparing you to do something. Hmm. Approach, avoid, or attack are the general motivations. Interesting. Uh, we're aware of the feelings, because you need consciousness to be aware of those. Yeah. But the other two functions of emotions are unconscious. We're not aware of them. But um, the, the point that I think your, your listeners want to get is that feelings are, uh, are the slowest part of the emotions, and they're also the part that has no reality testing. Uh, in other words, the toddler brain can't tell what's really happening from what's inside its head, what's mm. thinking or imagining. And that's how we're able to have emotions when nothing's happening. We're just <laughs> thinking about something yeah. or imagining something or dreaming. Interesting. Be- because it's the prefrontal cortex that has to test the reality. Is this really happening? Is the alarm really uh, signaling something that's actually occurring? So an or advancement it- of a human then would be to when you're starting to have a feeling to go uh, test it. Go gather data, but gather kind of more neutral data to see in your prefrontal cortex to see if this is legit or not. Yeah, I'm feeling irritated. Is my wife doing something wrong or am I feeling or am I hungry, hungry? Right. <laughs> tired? Yeah. And, uh, and I guess that's really the difference between, I guess, uh, I get, I get about, I guess, becoming more evolved, more, um, more probably what we want to become, more human, yeah, more healthy uh, it, human. You be more. Uh, uh, I call it the upper prefrontal cortex is the the most profound part of the brain. That's the part where we soar above, where we become better, hmm. uh, morally, intellectually, and spiritually. 
all of that is the profound part of the brain, and it's always available to us if we don't give in to those habits of retreating to the toddler brain. And and it's that's the battle, isn't it? It's kind of the immediate, quick, and if you don't do it soon enough, do you get hijacked? How, how long does it take you to recover from hijacking, or is it just a shift of thinking? If you don't justify it, uh, by say, the way we justify it is she had no right to say that right. to me, or, you know, how, how dare him not, not think about me. If we don't do that, the longest it can last is about 20 minutes. Hmm. Uh, but we have a way of prolonging and making it last for days. Yeah, and then we make stories, don't we? And then the stories are just the automatic script. Yes, the the stories, though, are never complete. They're always, because they don't have any other perspective. So you can't get the reality of an interaction without both perspectives together. That's binocular vision. Uh, If you only know your own perspective... You uh, even if your perspective is completely right, it's going to be incomplete because you're not seeing the other half of the dynamic. Hmm. It would, this it would is be like huge. Playing tennis by only seeing the ball coming at you, not seeing what you're doing to the ball. Right, right, <laughs> man. But um, Stephen, we got to get this out there. This is this is critical because it really becomes kind of the core to all of our meaning, all of our purpose, our happiness. And, I mean, being able to overcome stuff, being able to forgive people, just being able to be moral. Yeah. Yeah. You see, the toddlers can get away with blame, denial, and avoidance because sure. they're, they're so cute. That's right. <laughs> it's not so cute when adults do it. That's though. right. Yeah. A tantrum by an adult is scary. Cops get called. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Well, um, man, I wish we had more time to talk, Stephen. Uh, give us the one thing. If there's one thing we could remember to make sure that we we do make that leap up into the higher uh, prefrontal cortex, the upper prefrontal cortex, what, what would help us make that leap quickly? I think that the easiest thing is when you feel bad, ask yourself, how can I make this a little better? Hmm. As soon as you do that, you engage the prefrontal cortex because the uh, toddler brain doesn't know how to make anything better. That's so <laughs> it just makes things worse. And that's the uh, neat thing about being a hum- an adult human. You, yeah. you have that how ability. Can I, how can I make it better? That's great. Not fix it completely yeah. because... You'll That'll overwhelm. Yeah. That. Yeah. How can I make it a little better? That's beautiful. Stephen Stosny, uh, great author, great, I think, gift to humanity. And uh, go check out the book, Soar Above, How to Use the Most Profound Part of Your Brain Under Any Kind of Stress. Also, go check out the website, CompassionPower.com. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. Appreciate you. Uh, truly great work. Uh, honestly, if you just go read the, his history of work, it's amazing the lives he's changed. Um, People that just had no shot at life, and now he's, uh, you know, he's helping all of us elevate our thinking from the toddler brain to the adult brain. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Hey, today we're talking about tips for raising your, your kids in an online world, especially how to raise kind kids, healthy kids. Um, we've already kind of talked about be careful that you're not shaming them. Have a big discussion. Open the discussion up with your kids. 
Let your kids teach you because your kids know more about technology than you do. And so if you put them in the role of being the teacher, they'll usually open up a lot more for you. Let them help you with your tech issues. It's the greatest thing when your child gets to actually teach dad. And by having kind of that inverted power relationship where your child's the knower and you get to be the learner, you learn a lot about your kids. You learn a lot about how they think. You learn a lot about their esteem. So that's powerful. Some other tools that I would I would just – I'd highly suggest because they're things that to me seem to go to the wayside when we get into the online world. Make sure for your children you're modeling excellent social skills. Because technology, I have a feeling, is going to impair some of our social skills, right? Like we have people breaking up with people via text. That used to be a conversation we'd always have face-to-face. We have people that um, are asking someone out on a date simply by filling out a form or typing something in on their website. Now, there's nothing wrong with online dating, but there's going to be a day that you're going to have to face the person you're dating. And if you don't have the social skills, you're in trouble. So as a family and as a couple, make sure you spend time teaching your children social skills. Teach them how to make new friends. Teach them how to start a conversation with somebody. Give them some starters. Hey, that's a nice dress. Where did you get it? What are you studying? Just ask. Teach them some skills about how to start a conversation. Teach them skills about how to end a conversation. Have you ever been talking to somebody that couldn't end the conversation? And you almost just want to walk away. Yeah, I'm done. I'm out of here. This isn't working for me. Focus on social skills. And that might even be something in a weekly basis, maybe at your dinner table with your kids. Teach them a new social skill. Make sure that you're also giving your children an opportunity to order their own food at the restaurant, that they're going up at restaurants, and they're, if they have to go back and, and get something or talk to the adult, let your kids talk to the adult. Teach them how to solve a problem by talking. Now, it's hard when they're younger, but when they're a little older, coach them through it. Model it. Model it. Model it. The more you model excellent social skills, I think the more hope your kids are going to have in the world. In the end, it's going to come down to relationships. It's not just going to come down to technology. Think of your Facebook friends. How many of those do you even interact with face-to-face? You could also um, model while you're at it your values and your beliefs. Have discussions with your family about what are the family values. What do we believe in as a family? When you see a problem online and – you caught one of your children having looked at pornography, bring up our values. Talk about your beliefs. Talk about why that's harmful. Talk about how it objectifies women, how it changes how we see each other, and have those conversations. Start letting your children understand that the decisions you're making about disciplining them are based on a family value of We believe that we should have respect of each other, and that wasn't respectful what you did. We believe that you should keep your promises. 
and coming home a half hour late, you didn't keep your promise. Tie your discipline back to your family values and your beliefs. Why that's important is because then as your child is interacting uh, with this crazy online technology that's ever-changing, they will always have a core set of values and beliefs that they can go from. No matter what happens online, son, be respectful. No matter what happens online, serve or love or care or lift people. Right? No matter what happens online, be safe. Don't invite someone into your life that you don't know. So model your model excellent social skills and model your values and your beliefs. Also, model connection and sensitivity. One of the things I think that happens with online experiences is um, we're, we're in a weird state with these people. Uh, the research shows that you are much more likely to say something online than you are um, to say it to someone's face. You're more willing to say something in a chat room or like on a message board underneath an article that you didn't like. You're much more likely to be rude and angry and hurtful than you are if that person was in the room with you. There's just something about kind of the anonymity of being online that that's a problem. And the best way to fix it or fight it is connect. Teach your children that when they're talking to somebody via text, there's a human back there, right? The interface is just the text, but there's a human being that, and you need to be sensitive to what you say. Think about how they would interpret what you're doing. Talk about it. When they've, when they've received a text message that was hurtful, bring it up. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. In our family once, I had my son that would take pictures of one of my other sons that were embarrassing. They were like when he's sleeping. And then he would, he would take them with his phone, with the son that was sleeping's phone. And then he would send it out to all of his friends. And he just thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Great. Now, if you live long enough and you have kids, you're going to have these issues with technology. So then we sat everybody down and we had a big talk. What does that feel like? So if your brother did it to you, how would you feel? I wouldn't care. Well, whether you care or not, what do you think he feels? He's your younger brother and you just sent a picture of him looking pretty goofy out to everybody he knows? That's hard. Have the conversations. Model connection. Show them what a healthy connection looks like. But you can't show them what a healthy connection looks like if you don't know how to connect. So that's why you're going to eventually need to turn off some tech once in a while and have some connection. And then another rule for you is just model the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. You've got at some point, I think if if technology is going to continue as it is, which it will, it'll just continue doubling. At some point, um, we are becoming a, a population, I think, that is so addicted to instant gratification that I think we're in trouble. So we have to somehow slow the flow of instant gratification. And I would probably have a big discussion about it and challenge everybody in the family. What do you love the most? Teach them. 
you know, how many times have you just been going home and one of the kids says, hey, can we go to McDonald's or whatever? And you don't, you just, yeah, sure. You know what? Go home. Make a meal. That's one of the great things about making your own meal is it actually takes time. And the time with hungry kids is a good lesson to learn. But nowadays, we can just shove a nugget in their mouth and say, there you go, pal. We're robbing the principles of the harvest, the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. If you don't have the discipline to feel the desire to look at your phone and not look at it, you're in trouble. Because that means you won't have the discipline when your kid is mouthing off at you in 20 or 30 years, you won't have the discipline to not go off on him. We have to start teaching our children about some of these uh, natural laws of like instant gratification and delaying gratification. So technology is great. Don't get me wrong. I love it. It's here to stay. And I think it's incredibly beneficial to our lives if we lead it. But if we're not leading it, then we are just being acted upon, and it's going to create bigger problems for us. So lead it, for heaven's sakes. Let's just lead it. Anyway, there's a little tech advice for you from Coach Matt. Now, you all, you knew this. You knew it already. The hard part is uh, it's living it. That's where it gets a lot more difficult. So we're going to take a break. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show.